Uh, welcome uh, everybody who's here, those who are joining us in Starleaf. We have Gemma and Linda and Rachel, and then we have uh, Peter, uh, who's joined us for his first committee meeting, so we bid him welcome. <laughs> Wish him well. And then we have, I think Robin is going to join us later on in terms of the meeting. Just to briefly, <laughs> members go over uh, what's for today's session. There's an oral evidence session with the Lord Chief Justice, and that will commence at 2 p.m. Two oral evidence sessions with Sina G, the report on child sexual exploitation in Northern Ireland and an inspection of the criminal justice system's responses. Uh, the first with the criminal justice inspector and the second with the relevant officials on the action plan to address the findings and recommendations within the report. A written update on the delegated powers within the protection from the Stalking Bill, an update on the proposed LCM for the Police Crime Sentencing and Courts Bill, statutory rule to amend Rule 22 of the Parole Commissioner's Northern Ireland Rule 2009, and then written papers on a range of issues, including the next steps for the McLeod remedy for judicial and police pension schemes. The Department of Justice's response to the recommendations of the review of hate crime legislation in Northern Ireland, Phase 2 of the review of the PSNI Injury and Duty Scheme, and the proposed consultation on the non-fatal uh, uh, strangulation legislation. So, they, we welcome those who are uh, with us, and if you want to use your mobile device, as long as they are in airplane mode and all devices are muted, then that will help in terms of everybody being able to hear and no interference. Uh, we are obliged to declare any financial or other relevant interests which might reasonably be thought by others to influence their approach to the matter under consideration. Any members who have interest to declare in relation to today's business should do so now or when the particular matter uh, arises in the meeting. Have members any interest to declare? Thank you. You say I'm disinterested rather than uninterested. <laughs> Thanks, Peter. <laughs> Uh, can we have agreement from uh, members for the oral evidence sessions of uh, Synergy and the Lord Chief Justice to be reported by Hansard? Agreed? Agreed. Thank you. We will suspend the meeting following the completion of the first two oral evidence sessions and consideration of the written papers from the short, for a short lunch break, which I hope will be before uh, one o'clock, and then uh, we will have the Lord Chief Justice at two. Item one of today's agenda are apologies. I have an apology from uh, Emma Rogan, and I understand Doug Beatty will be joining the meeting uh, at 2 p.m. Uh, Linda and Sinead and Rachel and Gemma are joining us by Starleaf, uh, and we welcome them as we've done at the beginning to the meeting. Uh, if, in relation to delegated uh, authority, uh, Emma has delegated her vote to the Deputy Chairperson, uh, Linda Dillon. Item 2 of the agenda, which is the draft minutes of the meeting of the 17th of June. You will find that on pages 6 to 16 of today's meeting pack. Are you content that the minutes are a true reflection of the proceedings of the meeting of the 17th? Agreed? Agreed? Thank, agreed, thank you. And I have signed the minutes accordingly. Item 3, matters arising. Items 1 and 2 are the updated committee forward work programme and the Department of Justice's request to defer a written briefing paper. And you'll find the forward work programme is at pages 18 to 22 
of the meeting point. Provisional arrangements have been made for the joint committee meeting with the Health Committee on the results of the consultation on the development of a joint secure care and justice campus for children on the Woodlands Lakewood site to take place on Thursday, the 1st of July, from 1 to 2.30 p.m., with the Justice Committee meeting starting immediately afterwards at 2.30. Details of the arrangements for the meeting will be provided, along with relevant papers, early next week. So I need to ask formally uh, agreement to hold the Joint Committee meeting with the Health Committee on Thursday, the 1st of July at 1 p.m. to take oral evidence on the development of the Joint Care and Justice Campus for children. Agreed? Agreed. Thank you. The oral evidence session with the Northern Ireland Commissioner for Children and Young People on the development of the Secure Care and Justice Campus. The Department's response to the NI Audit Office report on managing children who offend and other justice issues relevant to children and young people has been arranged for the meeting of Thursday, the 8th of July. The Department has asked to reschedule the written briefing paper on the planned transfer of the Appeal Service and Rent Assessment Panel from the Department for Communities to the Department of Justice, which is currently on the work programme for the meeting of the 1st of July. And the Department has asked that that be rescheduled to September, as there are some outstanding administrative and legal issues which are still having to be dealt with. The relevant correspondence is at page 23 of uh, the meeting pack. So are members uh, happy to agree the change to the work programme as requested? Okay. Then the item four. Uh, so is Synergy having some difficulties? Uh, yes, Chair. Apparently, Sir Jenny are having some technical difficulties in joining the meeting. So if we could perhaps take some of the written papers until we get it solved, that would be helpful. Okay, but we can still... Uh, so that was item four, so we can just move that uh, to item six. Okay. Just bear with me, members, until we get to item six. And then, if you could, Christine, just let me know when they're available. Item six, then, is the protection from stocking bill delegated powers. And members, this is at page, pages 168 to 185 of today's pack. The committee referred the delegated powers member, and can I just apologise to members, there are, there's a considerable amount of information here to read, so I'm just... Uh, bear with me, and I will try and go through it as best as I possibly can. But the committee referred the delegated powers memorandum for the protection for stocking bill to the Assembly Examiner of Statutory Rules for a report highlighting any delegated powers to which she wished to draw attention. Following receipt of the report, the committee noted at its meeting on the 20th of May 2021 that the examiner was satisfied that the delegation of legislative powers provided for in the bill is appropriate and the exercise of these powers is, in each case, subject to an appropriate Assembly scrutiny procedure. The examiner did, however, draw attention to Clause 17 of the Bill that provides that the Department must issue guidance to the Chief Constable about the exercise of the Chief Constable's functions under the provisions of the Bill relating to stocking protection orders or interim stocking protection orders 
and may, from time to time, revise the guidance and must arrange for it to be published in such a manner as the Department considers appropriate. The examiner noted that the exercise of this power to issue guidance is not subject to an Assembly scrutiny procedure. However, in the Delegated Powers Memorandum, the Department states that the guidance will be laid in the Northern Ireland Assembly for information purposes. And she has suggested, that is the examiner, that the committee may wish to consider whether it may be desirable to place upon the face of the bill a requirement to lay the guidance before the Assembly. To assist the consideration of the matter, the committee requested the views of the Department on the proposal. The Department has responded, indicating that having considered the matter further and upon receipt of legal advice, it is now proposing uh, to resale the, from the commitment uh, to lay the guidance in the Northern Ireland Assembly for information purposes, as there is no legal requirement for the Department to do so. So, members, on, uh, we, we just want to seek your views on the response from the Department and its proposals that rather than placing the requirement to lay the guidance before the Assembly in the face of the bill, it will now uh, roll back from that, from its position as it had set out in the delegated powers to lay the guidance on the Assembly for information purposes and whether we should seek any further clarification uh, from the Department. Rachel. Thank you, Chair. Um, a bit confused about why this is happening, um, and I suppose just from previous uh, legislative scrutiny that the committee have done guidance and the laying of guidance and been open about that has been um, a crucial part of what we have discussed. Um, indeed, we put that on the face of the bill of the domestic abuse legislation. So I would certainly agree with the examiner's suggestion and. I would like to, to know from the department why indeed they are resiling from um, their previous position in part on guidance and I certainly would agree that an amendment on the face of the bill would be preferable. Um, certainly would encourage the department to bring their own amendments to the stocking bill but if not um, I'm more than happy to explore this as a committee when we get to that stage um, and should agreement as a committee not um, be, be done I'm, I'm more than happy to propose this myself as an individual member but guidance is key for any legislation that, that we do indeed bring forward in any committee. So we certainly have questions about why that decision has been taken. Okay, thank you. Uh, Peter? No, I would agree with Rachel in relation to that. It seems to be just the, the small bit of information we've got back from the department. It seems to suggest having sought legal advice, um, that the legal advice saying this is not something which is required or legally absolutely necessary, but simply because something isn't required legally to be done it uh, doesn't necessarily mean that it's not a good thing, and it, it does strike me that it's both standard practice to, yes. to lay guidance, um, and also I think in, in circumstances in which it's not, if you like, directly accountable to the um, to the committee or indeed the assembly. At least having that guidance laid seems to be a very sensible step that provides that level of reassurance. And again, sort of, it, it, it does strike me that it's a fairly inadequate excuse. And again, I, I would agree with Rachel in terms of we seek further information a little bit from the department as well. But I think we probably should be looking to amend to put that on the, the face of the bill, uh, as I said, because if, uh, it does seem to be something that would be useful and virtuous, even if it doesn't perhaps 100% legally have to be required according to that. I don't think that's a good enough excuse, to be honest. Uh, Linda? 
Thank you, Chair. Um, I don't propose to repeat everything that's already been said, but just to say that that's ex those points are exactly mine that we should be asking the department. I mean, it seems such a minor thing, and it is minor to a degree, but if it's so minor, why then not just do it? It will be my, yeah. my view. And why, why are you saying it? So would, I would like to ask the department why they're doing that, but I do think that if they are intending to do it, then we should put that on the face of the bill. As Rachel has already outlined, we did. This was important to us during the domestic abuse bill. It will be no less important to us during the stocking bill, in relation to the stocking bill. So thank you. Okay, thank you. And thank you for the consensus on that. And it's convention and practice. And I just, I just can't understand why it would uh, take a different approach. However, uh, on the basis of those comments, we will correspond back with the department. Thank you. Uh, members, we're going to then return to uh, item uh, four on the agenda, and that is the report on the child sexual exploitation in Northern Ireland and the inspection of the criminal justice system's response, the oral evidence with the criminal justice inspectors. The criminal justice inspectors will now join the meeting uh, via Starleaf to provide uh, oral evidence on the inspection report on the criminal justice system's response to child sexual exploitation. And the relevant papers members are to be found at pages 25 to 125 of the meeting pack. And can I welcome uh, Jackie Durgan, the Chief Inspector, uh, Dr. Uh, Roisin Devlin, Lead Inspector of the Criminal Justice Inspection, Northern Ireland, to the meeting and advise them that the session will be reported by Hansard and transcripts will be published on the committee's uh, webpage. Jackie, as I've just taken uh, the new role as chair, I'm looking forward to meeting with you and working with you and your colleagues. And you're very welcome to today's meeting, and I'll ask you and your uh, colleague to present to the committee, and then we'll have questions. Thank you. Thank you very much, Chair, and good morning to you and to members. Dr. Roisin Devlin, Lead Inspector, and I appreciate the opportunity to speak to you about the inspection of the criminal justice system's response to child sexual exploitation report published in June last year. I hope the briefing paper that we provided in advance was helpful, and my brief remarks will recap on a few key points. Child sexual exploitation is an issue in our community that we know is happening, but we don't know enough about. But we do know that it, is, that it is child sexual abuse that needs a joined up child protection and safeguarding response and demands a robust response to disrupt more suspects and perpetrators. This includes better awareness across Northern Ireland about child sexual exploitation and the harm it causes. This inspection focused mainly on the PSNI and also the Public Prosecution Service, Youth Justice Agency, Probation Board and Northern Ireland Courts and Tribunal Service and their response. Inspectors from Her Majesty's Inspection of Constabulary and Fire and Rescue Services supported the inspection with their knowledge and experience, including case file reviews, and we also liaised with the Safeguarding Board for Northern Ireland when appropriate. Importantly, we heard from some young people and one parent about their experiences. Some children don't see themselves as victims or, or perpetrators as offenders. Sometimes the criminal justice organisations have trouble seeing that too. We found some good practice by police officers, prosecutors and others who were dedicated to helping children and disrupting offenders, 
but actions by police officers to safeguard children and disrupt suspects were not always evident and prosecutors could not easily identify cases involving child sexual exploitation and clear guidance was needed. A focus on child assessed, children assessed as at high risk of sexual abuse were put on a list while it wasn't clear what action was being taken to protect those deemed less than high risk. As with many complex issues in the criminal justice system, an effective cross-government response is needed to identify and protect children at risk with clear leadership and strategy that results in good practice and outcomes at all levels. Scotland, England and Wales have made a step change in leadership and clear direction from Secretaries of State that there's no justification for failing to share information that will allow action to be taken to protect a child, and we need the same here in Northern Ireland. This report made two strategic and seven operational recommendations, all of which were accepted. Strategic recommendations centred on the Department of Justice taking forward a cross-departmental response to tackle child sexual abuse and exploitation within six months, including targets for the development of a comprehensive problem profile led by the PSNI with DOJ and other statutory and non-statutory partners, improved outcomes, training and a framework for independent joint child protection inspection. Operational recommendations included the PSNI developing a routine quality assurance process for their response to child sexual exploitation with adequate and timely risk assessment and investigation, including child protection investigation. This was to be done by October 2020. Also, the Public Prosecution Service were to further develop its quality assurance of decision making in sexual offence cases, including actively sampling cases working with the PSNI where a child is a suspect and assess how understanding exploitation and grooming is reflected in prosecutorial decision-making to inform practice improvements. The committee may also be interested to note that we're committed to scoping a pilot joint child protection inspection within the business year and have been working together to progress this with the Regulation and Quality Improvement Authority and the Education and Training Inspectorate. While each inspectorate is independent of each other, we also all see the value in our partnerships and collaborating on such an important issue. I expect it will come as no surprise, given the importance of this issue, that a follow-up review will very likely be included in a future CGI inspection programme. I hope my brief opening remarks are helpful and Roisin and I are happy to answer any questions that you might have. Thank you very much, uh, Jaggi, and, and there are members who have indicated that they, they have questions and if there's any others if they just uh, let me know then we will proceed but uh, just in terms of of, uh, of an opening question Jaggi are you content with the response and the actions being taken to address the recommendations in the report and would you assess that as being satisfactory or where do you believe uh, there needs to be an uplift or further progress to be made so that the recommendations actually are implemented? Yeah, well, the Minister advised us that a task and finish group across departments had been established, and I think you're going to hear later this morning from officials about what progress there's made against that. And obviously, when we put a time bound element into a recommendation, we expect action to be taken or at least started within that time frame. Um, so it's something that we follow up on through follow up reviews. But I think each organisation actively needs to ensure that 
progress is made and that those those accountable for taking action are actually doing that within their own organizations and it's something that we're concerned about not just in relation to this inspection but i've also mentioned at committee before about the responsibility on organizations who agree recommendations to take them forward and make sure that they are implemented um, and it, but it is something that i think we are certainly encouraged by the commitment that initially has been demonstrated by officials and police officers and prosecutors and others um, that are involved in this complex issue and we'll be interested as well to hear this morning about <coughs> excuse me what progress they've made yes and i think i think that you know the, the issue in relation to this being a, a complex issue and it's also a harrowing issue and uh, as a former member of the northern Ireland policing board and uh, we will have representation from the, the police uh, with us later on obviously i have seen the work that they have been doing but one of the concerns that worries me most or certainly one of the concerns that uh, among those issues is that if we go back to 2014 we had the Marshall Report, we've had the Leonard Report, we've had a very worrying NCA, National Crime Agency's latest statistics and figures. And I wonder sometimes, Jackie, and, and then there's your own report and previous reports, I wonder at what point do we conclude that we are repeating the same things, but that the level of defined actual outcome has improved because reports are fine uh, analysis is fine but really to deal with this problem and it's a scourge and it, it's this is not a minor issue this is a very very serious and yes complex issue because it has many facets but at what time or at what point do we say we have all the reports that we need but now what we need is not another group, not another subgroup, or a subgroup of a subgroup, but it's actually delivery to ensure that this scourge is dealt with in our society. Oh, absolutely. I think you know the time for recommendations is over. There's plenty of recommendations from, as you've mentioned, a number of reports and, and certainly this inspection report, and it's now a time for action. And it's a time for effective action across all those government departments and agencies who have input to this and, and engaging meaningfully with voluntary and community sector organisations who also have information about what's happening with young people that they're in contact with. And I suppose it is about, as we mentioned in the report, about an effective problem profile to say what exactly is happening here because it is happening here and to understand what is going on and what information can be shared about young people are, who are at risk. So it is a joined up child protection and safeguarding response, but it's also a response to make sure that perpetrators are disrupted and that action is taken against them and it results in robust investigations and, and quality investigations leading to prosecutions. Yeah. And just one, one final query from, from me and then we'll go to members. Do you, do you think that we need a specific offence of child sexual exploitation in Northern Ireland and is there any such similar uh, legislation which is effective in any other jurisdiction? Okay. 
I'm going to bring Roisin in on this one because obviously as lead inspector, Roisin ha has a perspective on this. I think it would be good to hear from her on this one. Thank you, Jane. Yeah, thank you. Um, we, we didn't recommend a specific offence um, of child sexual exploitation. Um, what, what we did look at was the current practice and we looked also at the point you made um, in terms of outcomes, how have children been helped? And we did find that that was difficult to ascertain. And um, one of those reasons was because you're right, there is no um, standalone offence of child sexual exploitation. And therefore it was difficult to track cases through to establish what the outcome had been. Um, and that I understand is something that was um, being looked at as part of the broader consultation on the law by the um, Department of Justice. Um, I, I'm not aware if other jurisdictions adopt that approach um, uh, or, or what changes there have been elsewhere. Okay, thank you. And we'll go to the Deputy Chair, uh, Linda. Thank you, Chair, and thank you to Roisin and to Jackie. And I suppose just firstly to pick up on the point that you had made yourself, Chair, around you know reports and recommendations. And to be fair, I know that Jackie's been before the committee before. This is something that we have raised, and, and I think that she probably shares our view in relation to not just around this issue, but a number of issues where there are recommendations and you're continuously doing reviews. However, Jackie, you have mentioned that you pro probably will be doing a review. Will it be very focused in terms of a review of the recommendations and have they been properly and fully implemented? Um, and if not, why not? And can that be addressed? Or is there something that, that we need to be doing? For example, if, if, a, if the reason why a recommendation is not being implemented correctly is because you know, cross-departmental working is not happening the way it should, or there's a lack of resources, then we as an assembly, we as a committee, um, we as MLAs across the board need to be looking at that. So would it be, would it be as focused as that? Yeah. Um, Follow-up reviews are very focused mm -hmm. on the recommendations made in the substantive report. So a follow-up review would focus on the progress that each organisation had made who had lead responsibility or part responsibility for implementing um, a recommendation. And that's what a follow-up review does. It certainly would take cognizance of if things had moved on since the substantive report. So if there was a change in legislation or policy or strategy, it would take cognizance of that. But at the same time, it would focus on well, what exactly did these organisations do to implement the recommendations that they agreed to and they signed up to? Um, and, and are those recommendations still appropriate and current? So that's where our follow-up reviews would focus on. But it shouldn't need a follow-up review. Organisations should have their own governance mm. in place to make sure that there's monitoring at a senior level in each organisation to say, what are we doing with these? We've agreed these recommendations, particularly on, on this issue, which is such a, an important issue. If we can't agree and work in effective partnership across all departments and the agencies on something like child protection, well then, where does that leave us? So this is something that I think certainly is so important. We will be returning to and will be assessing against those recommendations. But I am confident that with the right leadership 
and with the right sense of momentum and with those governance arrangements in place to say we're not waiting to be held accountable organizations are holding themselves accountable to say we're going to push this but if it needs legislation if it needs resources then to be clear and upfront about what it's need what's needed and the reasonable prospect of having legislation um, through the assembly to do this and obviously there's a priority I we all understand that there, there are competing priorities for slots for legislation but as I say something as critical as child protection and safeguarding in our community when we don't even know the extent of the problem here but we know it's underreported is something that I think if if there was ever an issue that the government departments need to work in real meaningful partnership across and and operational agencies working in true partnership with the voluntary community sector it has to be on something like this no i appreciate that just another two quick points here the first one is uh, and you, you actually did touch on this jackie but just to put you back over it you know the report obviously talks about the staff change in leadership and we're not talking about a change in, in personnel i understand that and that that has happened but um you know that there was no such step change here in the north so i'm just trying to get a wee bit more detail on exactly then what does the step change entail and then the other question that i have is the report acknowledges the the issue regarding prosecutors um understanding the nature of exploitation and grooming you know, including the myths and stereotypes about children demonstrating affection and, and and older children putting themselves at risk and all of that kind of, of stuff. So I'm I'm just wondering just how serious and widespread that problem is in that is it is it PPS alone or is this something that you think is is widespread throughout the legal profession and the judiciary? And I'm wondering how how can we address it? And I mean I, I certainly have heard comments in my lifetime, never mind my political lifetime, that would concern me. But I know that it's complex and I know that really and truly until people, you know, are educated around this issue, it can be difficult to understand and you can have a, a, a view of something, an entirely wrong view, but without somebody maybe sitting down explaining why it's wrong. And very, very educated and smart people can be very, very, I don't want to use the word stupid, but it's, it's ignorant maybe is the word, when it comes to particular issues. And this is one of those issues. And I, I think that that, that that certainly is the case. I mean, we've just dealt with the domestic abuse bill and we know that it's only really in very recent times that coercive control is being recognised as a form of abuse. You know, people will talk about you're slow to react and why haven't we had this legislation and I'm sure they'll say the same about child sex exploitation, why haven't we had this years ago? Because people didn't have an understanding of it. If you don't understand something, you can't fix it. So, I mean, yeah. the Justice Committee, and I'm not going to dwell on education, but I certainly am going to be asking the, the chair that we write to the Education Committee, or the Education Minister rather, on what has been done in terms of education, around education young people about what exactly this is because as well as those who deal with it not understanding what it is those who are victims and some perpetrators don't understand what it is that is happening to them or what they are doing 
Yeah, um, you're absolutely right. And I, I think if I can, I'll address the, the step change point, I'll maybe pass the point about prosecutors um, to Roisin, um, okay. just to say that you're absolutely right. Sometimes I think it's it's on the wider community, people don't recognize it. Um, and even if they do recognize it, they're not entirely sure what to do about it because it can look like some young people are, are acting up or, take, or engaged in risky behavior, but to try and, um, whether it's a parent or a uh, somebody they're in contact with through education or voluntary community sector to try and join all those pieces of information together to say what is the, the situation with this child and are they in need of protection? Where is the risky behavior? Why is that happening? Sometimes when children become um, the perpetrators of crime as part of that activity, it's very, very difficult and for police officers and prosecutors to discern between that. But it is about a whole of child approach. It's about a whole of system approach. Um, and it's with the aim of appropriately and adequately protecting our children. And um, on the step change point, the, the, the content in the report about that was very much a clear message from government. And it happened in Scotland and England and Wales to say, there's no good reason for not sharing information to protect a child. You cannot hide behind GDPR. I think sometimes on the front line, people are worried about challenge. They're worried about doing something wrong um, rather than having that permission from the top of a department to say, if you have information that is related to protecting a child, then you need to share it. Um, I need to share it in an appropriate way with the appropriate people. And I don't think we've had that message from government. Uh, I think we need it and I think practitioners need it. Um, but I think there is that issue about caution uh, and maybe sometimes inappropriate caution. So that that's a step change that we're looking at and asking for to say that clear direction across the assembly and each department to say here, make it clear to officials and to practitioners, here are the circumstances in which you can share information when it's about protecting a child. Thank you, I appreciate that. Um, yeah, and if I could also add to that, when we did the field work, one of the things we um, considered is if there was a strategy here, because that was a recommendation from the Marshall Report. Um, and we did consider it carefully because we spoke to different groups of people um, but, but when we looked, um, we, we thought, well, there is a, a child sexual abuse strategy in England and Wales and um, a strategy in Scotland, and we felt really that it was still a gap here that the Marshall Report had called for it. Um, and really, it, it was something that, that was needed, um, particularly to support um, people working every day and to have that leadership and, and guidance at a across departmental and multi-agency level and to give them the support and working in a, in a complex area um, and so that was one of our, our key recommendations in respect of um, understanding about uh, sexual exploitation of children and mm -hmm. um, we also did consider that we had focus groups with the different agencies the police service the prosecution service youth justice probation um, and we find really that that understanding um, had improved, it, it was good. There was a good sense of what the challenges were and the complexities um, and the fact that children and young people don't 
often see themselves as victims and, and how to get around that challenge. But we also then um, sampled from a number of case files relating to children and young people within the police and public prosecution service. It wasn't a representative sample, but it allowed us to see in some instances how cases were being progressed. And again, we, we did find good examples, um, but also that there could be a better reflection of that kind of circumstance in the decision making. Um, and we pulled out in the report Baroness Louise Casey, her reflections on child sexual exploitation from the Learn in England and Wales. And at that point, which I think is a really, a really um, essential one, she said the important point, point about grooming is that it removes any self-determination from a child. There can be no concept of consent to sexual activity where a child is groomed. In fact, a refusal to admit any problem, to protect the boyfriend, to climb out of windows, to run away from those protecting them to the abuser is in essence the sign of a groomed child. And I suppose what we were calling for was that there is a good understanding of that by those involved in the criminal justice system and their policies and practices um, and that it's linked to child protection and procedures. Thank you. Thank you, Chair, and thank you, Roisin and Jackie. I appreciate your answers. Gemma. Thank you, Chair, and thank you, Jackie. Um, I just have one question. Uh, concern has been raised regarding the Department's Income and Advocacy Service for Domestic and Sexual Violence and Abuse because there's no specific service focusing on the needs of children. What's your assessment of this service, and do you think a child specific service is necessary? Um, join it. I think I'll take that one, Roisin. I think, yeah, I think it's a bit early to say what we have commented on in terms of the advocacy services, of, as we've said previously, and I, I think we recently um, mentioned to the all party group on domestic and sexual violence. It isn't the service model that we'd envisaged in previous reports. Um, and it seemed to be a bit, still seemed to be a bit fragmented in terms of how victims, their journey through the justice system and when they would get support from various people at various points. But um, the, the service is only in its infancy and I suppose the proof of it will be in the evaluation and it will be in whether you know the demand for service versus the quality of the service provided and make sure that that's informed by users of the service. Um, so again, I suppose it's a, the, when you ask about a, a service specific for children, of course, there are different skills engaging with children and supporting children as opposed to adults. Um, and I know that the NSPCC have done some fantastic work in, in, in the courts in relation to that. But I think there is something around making sure that the service that now has been tendered and underway, making sure there's a very robust quality assurance review and benefits kind of realization of that service at an early point that it doesn't drift on um, and you get that input from service users. But it's, it's certainly not the service that we had recommended in previous reports. Okay, thank you. So it's just more or less just wait and see how it goes. And I, yeah, I think I think it needs a bit of time to bed in and see what it produces. And I think about the the range of is it meeting the needs of victims and witnesses, and 
the, where it is providing services to children, what the feedback is about the quality of that support provided. I think it needs a chance, basically, to be honest, um, and see how it goes. But I think there needs to be swift action if it's not meeting victim witness needs. It shouldn't drift on um, and say, well, we need to do something here. It's not just the service that we envisaged, and it's not certainly not the joined up service that we envisaged through previous inspection recommendations. Could I also add that um, at the time of the inspection, victim support had begun a pilot for um, a children's independent sexual violence advocate, or CHISPA, I think it was termed. Um, so, so that had been in place at the time, and we had highlighted that um, as good practice. Okay. Yeah, I'd be in agreement that if it's not working right, that there will be swift action and don't let it drag on. So thank you very much for that answers, Chair. Um, that's my questions. Thank you, Gemma. Peter. Uh, thank you, Jackie and, and Roisin, uh, for that. Uh, I think it's very, one of the very useful things about your report is the, um, if you like, the, the division within the report in terms of the strategic objectives and the operational matters. I think that's, that's quite important. Uh, and I just wonder, in terms of the, uh, the operational side, um, I suppose from experience, it's, it's quite often that if a challenge is put out to departments to work together, particularly at a high level, that's something I think which is quite often reasonably well done that can be put, put together. But obviously, as you highlight within the report, I think particularly at um, Operational Recommendation 3, it's, it's sometimes that, that you can see that sort of high level of cooperation, but it's the consistency of what is happening on the ground um, that will be of critical importance. Um, and I suppose it's, first of all, to establish, you've mentioned about the, the issue uh, in terms of implementation of the quality assurance side of things. You've also mentioned about the a range of inspectorates working together on the follow-up report. I'm just wondering, particularly in the follow-up report, um, will there be an opportunity to, to dig down into what's happening on the ground to make sure that, if you like, the high aspirations that will be signed up to by DOJ and others are actually reflecting a consistency of approach um, on the ground and that level of quality assurance uh, on that basis can be obtained by yourselves? Um, thank you, um, Mr. Weir. I think, to be to be frank, I think that wouldn't necessarily be our experience, where it's easier to address strategic recommendations and operational ones. We would um, often find that operational ones, where maybe there's only one organisation responsible for taking action, that sometimes it's easier for those to be implemented than those um, strategic recommendations that need that agreement across government departments and are and they might start off well. Um, you mentioned with another, I think the chair mentioned about um, working groups and, and um, forums to take forward strategic recommendations, but it takes a long time to make an impact and to say that they've been at least partially implemented, if not fully implemented. Um, the follow-up review will focus on each individual recommendation and give each organisation who is party and responsible for implementing the recommendation to show, to self-assess what they believe they have achieved against it. And then the inspection team would do their own due diligence and evidence gathering around whether that recommendation could be deemed to be achieved or partially achieved or not achieved. Um, in relation to the joined up working with the other inspectorates, that um, 
scoping study and planning and discussion with RQIA and DTI about a possible joint child protection inspection. That work is underway, but it is separate to the follow-up review. The follow-up review for this inspection report will focus on the recommendations of this report and we would be carried out solely by CJI. But in the meantime, and to for us, as each is independent inspectorates have agreed that we want to work together and show some um, partnership working in terms of what is the art of the possible, if you like, in terms of independent inspectorates coming together on a relevant child protection issue, and that work is ongoing. It will form part of that framework that we've mentioned as a recommendation for the Department of Justice and other departments to agree through the senior officials child protection group to decide what the framework within the wider child protection framework arising from Marshall and other reports for Northern Ireland. But we're very keen that we work with the other inspectorates to discuss what might be achievable and delivered within, or at least certainly commenced within this business year. Just to follow up then, I was just thinking as well, is um, obviously it's a very valuable report in terms of where there are gaps, trying to close those, where I suppose to some extent we are trying in Northern Ireland to get a certain level of step change to bring things up to date and ensure that, that the response particularly of PSNI and public prosecution towards child sexual exploitation is, is, is up to date. But we're acute, I suppose we're all acutely aware that there is always sort of a, a moving game here, particularly amongst criminals, uh, that what, if you like, would be fit for purpose five years ago or ten years ago is not necessarily um, where we are today. And I just, if there's any thoughts you have in terms of how PSNI, in terms of their response to child sexual exploitation, could not only just bring themselves up to speed, but as much as possible try to, to future-proof their actions, because I'm conscious of the fact that almost with, with any improvement in being able to deal with any form of crime, there's always the risk then that the criminals will actually try to be one step ahead again and try to adjust their behaviour to, to seek loopholes. And I just wonder if you have any thoughts in terms of, that, uh, in terms of the response of the PSNI? Yeah, I think what this report has shown very clearly is that need for that joined-up approach from education, from health and social services, from voluntary and community sector organisations. So often the place, um, the information that they get from other sources um, is what informs their investigation and in turn informs a quality investigation file that's passed to the Public Prosecution Service. So the quality of evidence that they can gather and the willingness of people to call out that type of behaviour when they suspect that a child ha is involved in child sexual exploitation, that there's a sexual abuse issue. And that can come from a number of sources. And, and certainly, you know, in terms of provision of whether a child is absent from education, from school, or for education other than school provision, where they're not engaged with their usual um, social groups in terms of organisations that they might be involved in, or they're seeking help from other organisations with their issues. It's taking the collection of all that information and saying, right, does this need a child protection response? Does this need an investigation for criminal proceedings by the police who in turn will build a quality case file to pass to the public prosecution service and make sure that it is uh, you know, an effective prosecution and that convictions are secured. 
So I think very clearly this report shows that it's not just a criminal justice system issue. It has to belong to all of us <coughs> in society, as you know, Linda mentioned earlier, by being aware and educating everybody to recognise the signs and to call it out. But I do think there is something about our community that actually we, we would be more comfortable thinking that that's not happening here. The child sexual exploitation isn't at the scale that it is in Northern Ireland. And it is about that piece about making sure that there is the profile and, and raising awareness about what that actually means, that it's not just about a child that occasionally goes missing from a children's home or their own home, because it's not exclusively an issue for children and who are looked after far from it. But how do you join all those pieces of information together and where there is a concern about the behaviour of an adult or indeed a peer who is involved with a, a child? What do you do about that? And how do you get all that information together to support the police mm -hmm. and the public prosecution service to bring those offenders to justice? Roisin, don't know if there's anything else you wanted to add. Well, yeah, um, our strategic recommend, sorry, recommendation to called for the comprehensive problem profiles. Um, and the purpose of that was really just, as you say, to understand what the future risks are, um, rather than what is known to the police. And key to that was input from the statutory and also non-statutory partners. Um, and the idea of a problem profile is to appraise what, what everyone knows and, and what that would tell you about the future risks and then how to plan for that in order to tackle child sexual exploitation and, and really eradicated. Mm -hmm. And I think, I mean, obviously one of the major concerns that, that has been out there um, during the past, I suppose, year and a half during COVID has been that in terms of sexual exploitation of children, that there will be a number of children who have been very much identified as being at risk. And to some extent, there's a level of, of, of known sort of qualities. It's probably more of a comment than a direct question. But obviously the concern has been out there particularly during periods where um, points of lockdown where people were in the schools, you know, what was happening, if you like, behind closed doors of the families that, that no one necessarily sort of uh, knew sort of what was happening. I suppose just as well in terms of the level of, of knowledge, because we've seen uh, the reports obviously made reference to the fact that all these jurisdictions have um, created levels of step change in terms of their actions. I suppose one of the other things, critically, will be the linkages in with other jurisdictions, so that where there are where there's best practice either here or elsewhere, that there, there could be that sharing of information between jurisdictions, so that if there is some particular piece of action that has proved successful in one jurisdiction, it can then be something which can be applied across others or looked at at least to be applied across others um, to ensure that that, that that we remain very much at the cutting edge of trying to, to combat this uh, dreadful evil. Yeah. I mean, there's any amount of research and strategy and, and information out there. I think it's the, the what's needed now is action for Northern Ireland. Um, what's needed is something that is, is uh, an appropriate and an adequate response to child sexual exploitation in Northern Ireland. But just to pick up on your previous point, what I should have said was in, in terms of what has moved on, then obviously in the last five to 10 years, you know, mobile phone technology, um, communication methods, whether they're on particular apps that children, young people are using online abuse and the potential for exploitation to be 
um, motivated and, and basically uh, to occur through the use of mobile phone technology and online. So that's something that I think certainly um, PSNI would be aware of and how young people communicate with maybe now as compared to 10 years ago or videos that are, are put online of children and young people and, and how you respond to that and how we call that out, whether it's a parent or a friend or another peer. Um, how do you make sure that children and young people know that it's wrong, that it's an offence and what they need to do about it? and to make sure that that information is passed when a child's at risk that there, there's action taken. Um, so the, yeah, in terms of our society has moved on and the community has moved on, of course, investigations have to keep pace with that. Um, but I think there is that piece about, you know, with any amount of strategies, action, uh, action plans and, and grips and what we need is something, some outcomes from that uh, and action taken. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Uh, Rachel. Thank you, Chair. Um, thank you very much for your answer so far and your briefing document. Um, it was very useful, as was a lot of my questions have already been asked and answered. Um, but I just want to uh, refer to your document. In, in item 4.6, you said about understanding outcomes of how children are at risk of child sexual exploitation um, and to help as a challenge and criminal justice outcomes were difficult to ascertain. Um, you go on to do about risk assessment process that had been changed and it resulted in a reduction of, in children being identified as risk, at risk of CSE, and that was between 2015 and 2017. Um, I don't know, maybe once for, the ne for our next um, deputation, but what changes were made in the risk assessment process between 2015 and 2017? Um, and was that uh, looked at as part of the review? Um, and, and, and is, it, is that is the Department of Justice? Um, and is, is that featuring in any of your recommendations? The, the changes that have been made um, at the time is that it, it changed from what would have been quite a quantitative scoring process to something that was more qualitative and based on um, professional judgment. Um, we, we looked um, at a, a number of, of cases um, and within that, the way information had come in and how risk was assessed. And I suppose we, we had concerns um, about risks within the assessment being picked up and, and uh, being responded to by police. At the time, um, police were working only with children where the risk was deemed to be high um, and were not working then with children where the risks were low or medium. Um, and then we also had concerns about when the risk was assessed as high, what kind of work was being done uh, to progress the case. Thank you. And just sorry, just to get, uh, maybe maybe don't have the information. Who changed the you know with that risk assessment process? Was that changed by the department? Was it changed within the PSNI? Um, was it anything to do with you know cross sort of departments like with health or anything? Was that just maybe a cultural change? And I fully appreciate um, going to more professional judgment, more qualitative approaches. Um, but I do think that there needs to be a little bit of a balance then, especially if we have a risk assessment 
that's re reducing in the or showing a reduction in the number of children identified over those three years. That's obviously quite concerning um, uh, to have that. So uh, going forward, would you um, see a more balance then between qualitative and quantitative? Obviously, there would be differences between professional judgment, but if the judgment isn't there or it's not picking them up, coupled with the um, the type of work that is being done with, with children deemed risk, um, I think there might be a bit of, still a bit of a problem there. I, I think the, the important point is the risk assessment is joint, um, so it should be a social services and PSNI, um, and police will be able to provide more detail on how that process is um, working at the moment. Um, but um, it, it was joint at the time, um, and the, the key issue, I suppose, for us was was how that operated in practice um, and being able to pick up on on those risks. And our concern was um, we couldn't really ascertain a, a routine quality assurance mechanism um, that would, uh, as you say, pick up on concerns or if something had been missed. Um, and so we recommend that that was put in place. And it was actually begun and commenced at the time we were doing the field work for the inspection. Um, and so we, we do think that focused um, consideration of cases at the time um, by a supervisor is, is important and, and one of the key recommendations that we've made in the report. Thank you very much. I um, appreciate that. Um, a couple of other just um, questions. In terms of data sharing and information sharing, um, you'd set up a message from government. Um, do you think that that would be enough um, to, to sort of get over if there is a, a sort of a barrier in terms of um, GDPR, falling back on GDPR? Um, I appreciate that, that there have been massive changes to data sharing and data protection issues. Uh, absolutely. Um, we've all had to, we all had to work within it or, or learn it. It's a complicated piece of legislation. but. Um, we also have the Children's Services Cooperation Act, which mandates departments to work together. Now, I would, would tease this out um, at length during the domestic abuse bill in terms of information sharing. Um, but if, if, that, if that, that's, that's the legislation that's on statute there, so I, for me, GDPR not shouldn't be a barrier to this uh, and that legislation. Would a message from government be enough, to, in your opinion, to? to kind of circumvent those barriers um, in terms of information sharing for Northern Ireland? I think it would certainly help a clear, clear direction and a clear message um, from the top, but I think obviously it needs to be backed up by awareness and communication and training at all levels in, the org in any organisation. So I think it, it's not something that you kind of would be a one-off. Um, I think it's for organisations to make sure that protect practitioners are all aware of what they can and they can't do and if there is a if there are concerns and feedback from staff about what's appropriate to share and what's not that they have support and advice um, on what they can and can't do but it's, I do think that a message the tone is set from the top and the message is sent from the top and certainly in, in England and Wales when that happened and the secretaries of state and made that declaration that there was no excuse for not sharing information when it related to the protection of a child. I think that certainly was a bit of a wake-up call for some departments and organisations and their, and their arm's length um, agencies. 
um, to say, yeah, this is there's if there is information that should be shared to for safeguarding and protection of a child, then you know it needs to happen. So I do think it's really important, but it's not a, a one-off event or it's not a kind of oh tick that it's done. I think there needs to be that um, constant assurance, whether it's new staff coming into the an organisation and practitioners of saying. Um, this is what this is how we work around here. This is what we do in terms of protecting the children in our community. Thank you very much. That's all my questions, Chair. Um, much appreciated. Okay. Thank you, thank you to to members. Uh, uh, another issue in relation, Jackie, to the and you've made reference to it in the report about the use of terminology. Now, I apologise to you because we have only sent you. Uh, this morning, the response from the department, which we should have sent to you uh, earlier, in regards to they have now given us an updated uh, action log. So what we've done is we've sent that to you this morning, and what we would appreciate if if you had a look at that and any comments that you would have on that, if that could be sent back to us, that would be much appreciated. But obviously this yeah, whole, thank you. Th this whole issue of the terminology that's used and and the the challenges that that brings. Do you see that, that while it, it's it's a, a small step, but it is something that's necessary to ensure that uh, people are not for, former they have more difficulties and we continue the trauma via another means in terms of the way in which this is approached. Yeah, I mean, I think we we're very clear in this report. Um, child sexual exploitation is child abuse, and it needs a very robust child abuse response. Um, I think it, it is part of that community awareness and across government awareness and across agencies and practitioners and anyone who is is involved in this area of work that they are educated and aware of what child sexual exploitation is and how it can happen and not make assumptions about children and young people who appear to be acting up or leading chaotic lives or going missing frequently about finding out what is actually going on in that child's life and, and having, as I mentioned earlier, um, a child-centred approach to dealing with those issues. I don't know if there's anything. Um, we do make a point about um, terminology and during the inspection um, we were aware of the, the sexual offences order and, and how different offences um, are named um, and we had the paying for sexual services of a child um, and wording like sexual activity with the child um, the sense of that didn't quite grasp um, the sexual abuse um, against the child um, and, and we were conscious of that. And if, if I may come back to your question about there not being an offence, specific offence of child sexual exploitation here, and um, my understanding is in England that the, the terminology for one of the offences was was changed to reflect child sexual exploitation. And I suppose the important point is that the content of the offences do do grasp uh, what has occurred and protect the child. And the UN Committee on the Rights of the Child has um, called on, on the government here to um, ensure that all, all under 18 are protected from um, child sexual abuse and violence. 
And, and what we found in the inspection, as you probably did see, was that cases um, maybe prog progressed with lots of different offences um, around what has occurred. And so it might not always have been immediately obvious to a prosecutor when the file was passed that child sexual exploitation um, had been involved. Um, and I think what would help there is, is making sure that that is always flagged and made clear to the prosecutor so that their reasoning and decision can then reflect that. And I know in England and Wales, um, to help understand outcomes as well, there had been a specific crime flag attached to the sexual child sexual abuse um, offences and that was to help build an understanding of how cases were progressing where child sexual exploitation was involved and um, so I, I do think that's an important point um, and it is a complex one but one that, that needs continual focus. Okay thank you very much. Uh, can I thank you both uh, for your time, for the report and for the information that you provided to us and and no doubt we will continue to uh, have uh, an interest in this particular issue and I trust that soon we'll be able to maybe some good news in terms of, of legislation that uh, will, will be of help. So uh, thank you again and we look forward to continue to work with you. But thank you for your time this morning. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Chair. Thank you. Members, just to conclude before we bring uh, the uh, department officials in, London proposed that we write to the Minister of Education just for an update in relation to what's been done in, in that sphere. And uh, if you're agreed, we will do that. Agreed? Agreed. Okay. Thank you. That brings us then to item five, which is the action plan to address the findings uh, of the recommendation in the Senate report. And uh, you'll find the relevant information on pages 127 to 166. And can I welcome, I hope, into the Starleaf, the Deputy Director of Protection and Organised Crime Division at the Department of Justice, uh, Cathy Galway, and also Katie Taylor, the Deputy Director of Community Safety Division, Department of Justice. And I think I did see earlier Detective Chief Superintendent Anthony McNally of the PSNI, and also Keir McGullan, the Assistant Director of Serious Crime Unit Public Protection Services, and Theresa McAllister, the Professional Officer of Safeguarding Board for Northern Ireland, and welcome all to the meeting. I hope I've covered everybody. Uh, I'm trying to see everybody that's either in a room or on a screen at the same time, but I think I've, I've been able to identify most people that is there. And just to advise that the session will be report, uh, reported by Hansard and the transcript will be published on the committee uh, webpage. Maybe I could invite Cathy, uh, first of all, to outline the current position in relation to addressing the findings of the recommendation. Thank you for the information that you have sent to us, but you may have heard also, we just want to be up front. Uh, we haven't, uh, until this morning, sent that uh, to the Criminal Inspector, so we have done that now, and then they will probably give us some comment uh, following on from that. But Cathy, thank you uh, in anticipation of uh, your comments. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you, Chair. Can you hear us okay? Yes? Yes. Okay, thank you. Um, 
Thank you, Chair. Um, we're grateful for the opportunity to update the Committee on our response to the Criminal Justice Inspection Northern Ireland Report on how the criminal justice system responds to child sexual exploitation in Northern Ireland. We thought it would be helpful to briefly set out some background to the collective response to child sexual exploitation up to this point, um, though we did have an opportunity to hear the previous session. So um, we will be referring to reports, but understand that the committee will, will likely have some questions for us about um, the actual implementation of those. Um, there has been considerable and uh, concerted multi-agency effort to tackle child sexual exploitation in Northern Ireland going back as far as uh, 2013, both in policy and practice terms. And this was triggered in the main by a police operation at the time. Uh, an inquiry was then initiated by the then Minister for Health, supported by the then Ministers of Justice and Education, and a direction to the Safeguarding Board, uh, the SBNI, to undertake a thematic review. In 2013, then, Kathleen Marshall was appointed to lead the inquiry to examine the nature and extent of CSE in Northern Ireland and consider the effectiveness of current child safeguarding and protection measures and make recommendations on future actions. That report focused on both children and young people living at home in the community and those living in care. In summary, it found that child sexual exploitation takes many forms and is evolving in line with developments in technology. Professor Marshall confirmed that while child sexual exploitation is happening in Northern Ireland, there was no definitive evidence that it was as organised or on the same scale as elsewhere in the UK. Now, regardless of scale, obviously, there's no room for complacency. Uh, the Marshall Report was published in, 14, in 2014 and it made 17 uh, key recommendations and 60 supporting recommendations. And they were made for Departments of Health, Education, Justice, Schools, PSNI, PPS, RQI and the SBNI at the time. A senior officials group then, made up of deputy secretaries of the Departments of Health, Justice and Education, was set up to oversee the implementation of the Marshall recommendations and regular update reports were produced and published. The majority of the recommendations, um, ranging from the development of um, uh, making of legislation, collection of data, production of guidance, uh, revision of protocols, have been implemented, but obviously there is still work to do. As a result of the Marshall Inquiry, child sexual exploitation is given the significance it deserves and it also delivered important changes in practice, for example, the co-location of social workers and police uh, in units. There was then a thematic review of a number of cases undertaken by Professor John Pinkerton and in summary, um, it recommended an audit of practice and the areas for improvement um, and service provision were then mapped against the relevant recommendations in Marshall. Under the auspices of the SBNI, follow-up audit of practice was undertaken by the PSNI and the Health and Social Care Board, and this was then followed by the Leonard Review. And that examined the practice of all of the member bodies of the SBNI, including education and voluntary and community sector members. The Leonard Report then was published in July 2020, and this coincided with the publication of the Sigini Inspection Report. Leonard made 14 recommendations for the Health and Social Care Board, trusts the SBNI, PSNI and Bernardo's. A key finding of Leonard was that efforts to tackle child sexual exploitation should be rooted in child protection, which is a tried and tested policy procedure and long established practice of working on a multidisciplinary and multi-agency basis. It also reinforced the message that child sexual exploitation is a complex form of child sexual abuse. Accepting the findings of the Leonard report, a child protection senior officials group, which I'll refer to CPSO, has place the senior officials group established to oversee the Marshall recommendations. 
Its membership has also been extended to include senior officials from health, DOJ, education, finance and communities. The group now has a wider child protection remit and a work plan which includes oversight of implementation of any outstanding Marshall recommendations, the Leonard recommendations and overlapping Sajini report recommendations. The CPSOG has a subgroup, um, the membership of which extends to the PSNI and SBNI and it has been agreed that CPSOG will receive regular updates from SBNI to try and bridge that gap between what's happening at a strategic level and what's happening at an operational level. Uh, and hopefully that will ensure that our efforts to tackle CSE across departments and agencies are fully coordinated uh, and connected going forward. Turning now to the Sajini report, um, progress um, has been made to implement uh, the findings and the recommendations. The report recognised the commitment and dedication among criminal justice professionals and also recognised that the response required is well beyond that of the criminal justice system alone. Uh, it called for a strategic framework to support a collective response to child sexual abuse and exploitation, as well as clear leadership to promote frontline practice across the criminal justice system and beyond. The report did identify gaps in practice and the inspectors made two strategic and seven operational recommendations to enable a better criminal justice response and we welcome that. An update on the departmental response to the recommendations was provided to the committee in September 2020 and the associated action plan was then shared with the committee in 20, January 2021. The paper for today's session also provides an update on progress to date. Uh, in terms of the recommendations, the majority are operational for PSNI and PPS and I hope you can see from the detailed update that progress is being made. There are also a small number of recommendations for Probation Board, the Youth Justice Agency and the Northern Ireland Courts and, Tribunal, Courts and Tribunal Service and those updates are also included in the briefing paper. As well as the recommendations, the report also identifies areas for improvement which are being taken forward by the relevant business areas. Just turning very briefly then to the strategic recommendation, the first recommendation highlights the need for cross-departmental strategic response to tackle child sexual abuse and exploitation which is linked to any existing uh, future plans, existing and future plans for child protection. As you can see from the briefing paper, and as I've said out earlier, the Child Protection Senior Officials Group is a cross-departmental strategic forum which provides direction on existing or emerging child protection issues that require cross-departmental uh, coordination uh, and consideration. So in responding to the Sajini recommendation, it was important to consider the potential for duplication that may have been created if another structure replicating existing partnerships was put in place. Rather than creating another forum, one that DOJ would lead on, it has been agreed that the refreshed CPSOG is the appropriate forum for ensuring a cross-departmental strategic response to tackling child sexual abuse and exploitation and ensuring alignment with future and strategic plans for child protection. The recently updated terms of reference, which was included in the briefing pack, hopefully provides reassurance to the committee that this group will provide the necessary strategic direction um, that has been discussed and, and highlighted in the report as needed. The first strategic recommendation also refers to the inclusion of targets for the development of a comprehensive problem profile and improved outcomes, um, and work is progressing to develop this. PSNI colleagues are working with analysts to identify and capture all the information required to produce this uh, comprehensive profile and Anthony can hopefully provide more detail on this aspect of it. 
The recommendation also refers to multi-agency training, which is also referred to in the Leonard report, and SBNI ha um, has a plan to establish a training and communication committee to support multi-agency collaboration. In terms of the final part of the recommendation, the framework for independent joint child protection inspection, and no, um, Jackie and Roisin talked about this, the CPSOG subgroup are working with inspector colleagues in justice, health and education to develop an enabling framework for independent joint child protection inspections. And uh, we agreed recently that the recently established subgroup from CPSOG will produce a detailed scoping paper for a pilot to be tested by CGINI, RQIA and the ETI. A detailed scoping paper and action plan will be presented to the next CPSOG meeting to progress and support this important work. So as well as ensuring we play an active role in cross-departmental um, approaches, the report also provided an opportunity to, to consider how we in the Department of Justice coordinate the response to tackling child abuse and exploitation strategically across all of the various areas in the department. We've recently secured an additional resource to scope this work and provide an oversight uh, for the areas identified in the Sejini report and in terms of broader concerns about vulnerability and harm. Um, Chair, I'm not going to go into the other, uh, the second strategic recommendation. You have the detail um, in the pack and um, you know, through the CPSOG subgroup, we, uh, CPSOG subgroup, we will be uh, monitoring those actions and how they're delivered and implemented. In terms of the operational uh, recommendations, each partner agency is leading on the actions identified and work is progressing well. And uh, given the overlap with the Leonard recommendations, the work to progress some of the Sejini recommendations will be progressed by the SBNI subgroup on CSE, which Anthony chairs. In summary then, Chair, responding to the Sejini report provides the opportunity to develop a more comprehensive departmental approach to child protection, which not only encompasses CSE, but wider vulnerabilities, for example, how young people are also exploited through the coercive control of criminals and paramilitary groups. As the briefing paper highlights, actions are being taken forward to address the recommendations, and while we might not have met and have not met the timescale set out by Sejini, significant progress has been made over the last year, and we also acknowledge, though, that we still have a lot of work to do. I hope that update has been helpful, and uh, we're very happy to address any questions that members have. Thank you. Uh, thanks, thanks, Cathy, and I'm also glad to see on the call, um, uh, I as a former member of the policing board, I very much appreciate the work that has been done and led by Detective Chief Superintendent Anthony McNally. It's good to see him uh, on the call, and we'll, we'll bring him in maybe in a minute or two. Because really, I suppose the concern I have: the Marshall Report, 2014. Here we are, 2021, and we're still talking about. Now I know there's, and, and I do appreciate Cathy, the amount of work that's been put into. Uh, the response that has been given to the, the committee today and, and, and the various strategic work that has been going on. But if you were a victim of child sexual exploitation or the parent of a child uh, who was subjected to that, or a family member or someone who knew about this, would you really have any great comfort that a report and then subsequent reports and subsequent reports on reports has been all carried out, and there's a plethora of paper. But the problem with child sex, sex exploitation is, is on the increase. And I think when we saw figures a few weeks ago from the National Crime Agency, it is harrowing what is going on 
um, nationally uh, in the nation and locally when it's brought down to proportionality in terms of Northern Ireland. But there, there, is, there is one thing that I just want clarity on. Uh, well, number, but we'll, we'll deal with this one. The Child Protection Senior Officials Group. Did you say, and I think I picked you up right, that that has now been expanded because what I saw was there was a small core of departments involved and then the other organisations were in a subgroup. For example, the PSNI wasn't on the officials group, but it was on the subgroup. Has that now been changed and has that group been expanded? So, Chair, the CPSOG has been expanded to include other departments, and then the CPSOG has also, as part of the task and finish group, to look at the um, Leonard and the Sigeni recommendations. That has now become a subgroup of CPSOG. So, myself and Katie would sit on that, Anthony, Theresa, and others. Um, but what, what has happened now is that CPSOG has agreed that it will receive updates from SBNI, from, from the Chair, uh, and receive uh, practical updates about what's happening on the ground. So previously there was the strategic approach and you know it was departments talking to each other um, and it was mostly education, health and justice in terms of implementation of Marshall. That has now expanded into other departments and the CPSOG subgroup will be advising the CPSOG senior officials group about uh, you know, what's happening on the ground. So in terms of the information that's going to CPSOG, it will hopefully be a lot more informative and also we will then be able to bridge the gap in terms of how that in informs and influences practice on the ground and likewise how practice can inform CPSOG of issues that need a collective and coordinated departmental response. Can I ask Anthony? just a, a, a question as a practitioner and, and apologies for that very broad term but uh, someone who really is is in the front line of of a lot of this and your officers who have to deal with this uh, sadly uh, along with other of uh, your uh, colleagues uh, from the criminal justice system and do you believe that there's now a need for a specific offense of child sexual exploitation which would be helpful in terms of dealing with this problem. Good afternoon, Chair. Good afternoon, members. Uh, I knew you would ask me that, Chair. <laughs> um, you know me long enough I, now. Yeah, I, I suppose, you know, through my lived experiences of um, the past number of years in public protection branch, we see the challenges um, where things are unclear um, and there isn't specific legislation. And I think the example that this committee is particularly familiar with is the Domestic Abuse yeah. um, Bill and Will Be Act. Um, we did have challenges around, um, we really only had harassment as an offence specifically, um, which could or could not be used in a domestic abuse environment. But by having a, a specific offence for domestic abuse and a further specific offence of stalking and harassment to follow it, put on um, answer to this committee that I see the benefits of those to police in, in terms of having clarity. Um, that clarity also, I believe, allows greater understanding across agencies of roles and responsibilities. Um, it also allows for greater accountability 
um, across agencies and within agencies. Um, so as a basic um, principle, I could understand how legislation would be very beneficial. But at the same time, Chair, I also note you know, the words that have been used here this morning um, by, by yourself and others um, in terms of you know, critical, multifaceted, complex, complicated, and writing legislation to, to cover this would equally present those challenges. So not trying to sit on the fence, I can see the benefits, but I can equally see the challenges in terms of trying to write such legislation. But if it could be written, then certainly the PSNI would consider it a significant benefit in terms of how we could work with partners. Kieran, would you want to comment on that? Because uh, obviously, the, the, the relationship and the interaction between yourselves and, uh, and the police uh, is, is a vitally important component part of all of this. Would you have any comment to make in relation to the issue about the specific offence? Uh, thank you, Chair. Uh, can you see and hear me okay? Yes, we can. Yes. Well, what I would say on the issue of a, a specific offence is I, I would echo what Anthony has said that. Um, clarity is very important uh, and obviously there could be challenges around the drafting of any uh, such uh, offence. We certainly see that the sexual aspect to sexual, child sexual exploitation, the, the offences within the sexual offences order, the 2008 order, do generally cover the activity that we seek to prosecute okay. uh, and we feel that you know all of the aspects of it are, are contained within that. But the challenge, and I think the report set this out, um, is drawing out those aspects of exploitation and particular features within CSE. So um, if an offence could be drafted in a way that captures the offending activity, whilst uh, highlighting uh, those aspects of CSE, you know, that is something that we would certainly look to use, but we would be very conscious of not maybe diluting the offences that are already there. So I'm afraid I'm probably going to sit on the fence yep. alongside Anthony there, yep. but um, I do think that if it could be drafted in such a way as to assist us, we would certainly use it. Okay. Thank you. There's a, a, a list of members who are now wanting to uh, ask questions. So we, we'll go to members, and I'm going to try and take these in the order that I've got them. So first, uh, we have Gemma Dolan, and then we'll go to Peter, who's in the chamber with me. Thank you. Gemma. Thanks, Chair, and thanks, everyone, for attending and for your briefing. Um, can I start with Cathy? Just, Cathy, can the Department give an update on what further work has been carried out in relation to reversing the burden of proof in relation to the defence of reasonable belief? I'm sorry, Gemma, I don't. I, I, I'm not in a position to give an update on that. Um, I, but I'm, I'm wondering with Kieran. Does Kieran have any input into that? But I can I can certainly um, get an update for you. It, but I'm just wondering, does Kieran have anything to add? I, I wouldn't have any input into the legislative process, obviously. But um, I'd be conscious that that would be um, you know that would be quite a dramatic change to the the way in which these cases are prosecuted. I know that there's a lot of academic research going on, and there was a very uh, useful academic event last week which I took part in through um, a number of uh, different academics in, in Queens and elsewhere. So I'm conscious that um, it would be a significant step and there would be challenges in it. Um, 
it, it certainly is the burden is on us uh, as prosecutors to discharge, but whether the legislation is going to be brought forward or not, I, ca I can't speak to that, I'm afraid. Okay, thank you. Um, Cathy, if you if there is any work going on, could would you be able to yes, find out? Absolutely, I'll check that and get back to you. Okay, thank you. And the other question, um, the, this is probably for Anthony and the department, um, the progress update on the on the comprehensive problem profile of CSE is um, is welcome, um, as the outcome outcomes that will lead to are very um, important. But can you indicate a time frame for when it'll become operational? So, um, so Anthony and I discussed this yesterday, actually, in terms of the time frame, um, and so probably ar around the autumn time, maybe the work is ongoing. I think the key thing is, and um, you know, reflecting on you know what the inspector said earlier, um, we will be working with the PSNI in terms of supporting that work and also ensuring that that work is progressing in line with the um, with the recommendations in the Sajini report. But I know maybe Anthony could give a bit more of an update um, uh, from the PSNI perspective. Yeah, of course, happy to do so. Um, Jimmy, yeah, it, it is ongoing. So we agreed um, in terms of reference in February. It took us a little while through COVID and just with sort of changes in personnel and various agencies to get to that point. So those were agreed in February in terms of what we would look at. Um, so uh, we're kind of looking at it from a a problem analysis point of view in terms of what do we know about the victims, what do we know about the offenders, and what do we know about the locations where, where CSE is occurring, and digging down into each of those areas in terms of what information do we presently know across our agency. So things like what was the background of the child, did they live at home, were they looked after accommodation, were they a boy or a girl, what type of offending was occurring against them, and so on and so forth. So it is, by the very definition, comprehensive. Um, as of May, uh, sorry, as of the end of May, start of June, we had completed the sort of um, data gathering, if, if you will, uh, and again to do that across uh, the criminal justice sector, but also into to health and education, um, was challenging just through to different IT systems and so on. But being the leader from the PSNI perspective, very grateful for the support of others, not least Theresa, who's on the call from the SBNI to help us get that information. So we've got all of that information now, and it's now a case of working through it. And as Cathy said, the first cut of that I would hope to have probably by early autumn. Um, that may or may not be the finalised product, depending on what it looks like. We may need to go back if there are certain gaps. But we hope, as as um, the Sajini, uh, Jackie Durkin said earlier, we hope that that will help us understand what gaps and knowledge we have, and help us from what we do know determine then what we need to do next. And I think that all feeds into it. I think even that in itself may be an important thing to understand in terms of future direction around legislation and so on. So hopefully that gives you a bit more detail and an assurance that um, that work has progressed because we all collectively recognise the importance. Yeah, that's great. Thank you very much. And my other questions were about CPSOG, but you've, you've touched on them already. So thank you very much for that. Thanks, Chair. That's me as well. Thank you. Peter? Thank you, Chair, um, and thank you to Cathy and the team for the, the, the presentation. Uh, I suppose I just want to touch on two aspects, which also raised, I suppose, with, with CJI. Uh, Cathy, it was very good to get the um, action updates, and I suppose it's, it's good to see the, um, the steps that are being taken in terms of implementation of the, the report, both at a strategic level and also in terms of the action log, obviously deals with some of the, the actions that are getting taken uh, on an operational basis. 
Uh, and I suppose um, first point just want to, to probe is obviously in terms of implementation, uh, we're seeing what you've outlined is um, actions that are getting taken both uh, within the department in a wider sense and across, if you like, the uh, the wider sort of justice family, if I can put it that way, and also uh, actions taken in terms of. Um, trying to tie in on a cross-departmental level to get that, that level of input as well. But I just wonder, in terms of, you could maybe up, update us, in terms of combating uh, the, uh, the vile crimes of CSE, what work is going on um, in terms of progressing actions on a cross-jurisdictional basis? Uh, and I suppose really I look at that on two grounds. One, um, as we see in different jurisdictions, it is about trying to ensure that, that we're all sort of adopting best practice um, when tackling the issue of CSE, but also on, on the grounds that while um, I think for the vast majority of crimes will be quite localised in their nature, we're, we, we'd be aware sometimes of particular predators who uh, will look across dis different jurisdictions, will maybe just seek to exploit um, weaknesses, <coughs> exploit loopholes, if they feel that, that maybe one jurisdiction is not being at quite the same level as, as others. So I suppose my first question really is if you can maybe sort of outline not just what's happening across departmental basis, but um, what linkages are there in terms of being able to progress issues on a cross-jurisdictional basis. Okay, thank you. And um, yes, so at a policy level, um, we would engage with our policy colleagues in the other jurisdictions to understand what's happening in terms of serious and organised crime and CSE and sexual child sexual abuse would be included as part of that. And we would be docked into some of those um, uh, UK-wide um, um, meetings and official uh, meetings to understand emerging policy and what's happening elsewhere. And as I, I said earlier, uh, Peter, we're also, um, we've now got a resource uh, in the Department of Justice to make those connections, not just within the department, but also with other departments. And um, we recently uh, engaged with our Home Office colleagues around their new child sexual abuse strategy and their disruption toolkit to try and understand what's happening elsewhere. But you're absolutely right. I mean, while this could be a local problem, and I'm sure Teresa and Anthony will want to say something about the um, prevalence of it uh, locally, because of the online exploitation, um, you know, an abuser can be from from anywhere. So this has an international dimension as well. So um, we we do try and keep uh, ahead of the threats, and we get regular uh, updates and assessments from um, from some of our partners, which are shared with um, with the police. Uh, so at a policy level, we are um, engaged with the other jurisdictions, um, but we still have some work to do because. The resource that we have in the department to do this work about um, having an understanding and scoping out um, how we um, connect across uh, our own areas where there's legislation Gillen on on Kitty's side uh, and on Brian's side in terms of the uh, of the new offences and things like that. We still have some work to do. So we've we're starting off in this journey. Um, to to get more connected and to understand more, but from because I'm responsible for organised crime as well, I would be involved in all of the serious and organised crime groups that um, with the Home Office and colleagues in in Scotland and Wales as well. And I suppose just following on from that, because obviously appreciate particularly now as we're moving into a, 
a fast-moving era in, in terms of online. This, this can be international in its nature. Uh, but I was also just looking at the, the physical practicalities, and maybe this, this might be more, um, I suppose, in terms of the practicalities that maybe Anthony may be in the best position to, to um, answer. I, I presume as well in terms of that level of close coordination and works also happening between ourselves and the Republic of Ireland, where obviously it's a physical border, but uh, that obviously yes. then doesn't, doesn't uh, act as a, as a yeah, boundary at point. At a strategic for, level, yeah. you would have the um, Joint Agency Task Force that works on a cross-border basis, um, but in terms of uh, investigations or operations, maybe Anthony could come in there to talk about how they cooperate across uh, jurisdictions. So I'll maybe just um, touch on the, the online space um, first as well. So. There is a, um, a Home Office and National Police Chiefs Council-led um, Prevent and Pursue board that looks at the, at the online space in terms of online CSE. There's no doubt that it has significantly increased since 2013, um, and that's uh, no different here in Northern Ireland. Um, be that whether the victims are in Northern Ireland or whether the perpetrator is in Northern Ireland preying on someone else uh, across the world, um, which, which we of course have seen. So those two forums um, significantly are looking at how do uh, UK government work closer with legislative, with legislative requirements and so on around the multi-corporations, Facebook, Twitter, as to how they report this, how they try to stop it from getting on other platforms in the first place. So uh, I'm sure you'll have seen the, the online um, white arms paper um, and such documents. So there is a, there is a wealth um, and depth of activity trying to, to support the online space across the UK. That's also supported um, in Northern Ireland by the Safeguarding Board, who have a dedicated subgroup um, specifically looking at e-safety. Um, which again is, is chaired at the moment by police detective Chief Inspector Guy McDonald and Theresa um, was represented on that as well, I believe. So within the SBNI, it's one of the subgroups with a specific focus to try to, to look at it within Northern Ireland specifically. And that goes, goes back, it talks to the point that Jackie made around do parents and children know what the risks are and how to avoid them. Um, so there's been a significant amount of work done in that space and again, um, just to touch on, uh, I think it was um, Linda mentioned a point again, education um, are represented on the Safeguarding Board and are a member of the, the CSE subgroup of the Safeguarding Board, so are very much alive to, to the risks. So there, there really is a collaborative approach both within the UK and indeed within Northern Ireland in terms of the, the online platform. Um, Cathy touched on um, the Joint Agency Task Force, uh, and of course that's something um, between herself and, and Garda Shea Connor. Um, on, a, on an operational level, those things will just happen by nature in terms of we have connectivity with the Garda on a daily basis around any of these things that, that, that we need. Um, we have in the last number of weeks dealt with investigations with a cross-border aspect where children have maybe gone missing in the north and are suspected to be in the south. And those relationships are very strong um, through my own public protection branch. But hopefully that gives you a sense of sort of the... the the strength and depth of the collaboration both across the United Kingdom but also um, with our colleagues in the Republic of Ireland but specifically here in Northern Ireland. Uh, and I think sort of it's, yeah I mean I welcome that I think the um, I think you made very important points as well in terms of education particularly of parents because um, it's not even in terms of say some of the threats and some of the the changes that are happening from a um, the point of view of online or or sort of apps that will be on phones that it's not even simply that there can be a bit of a gap between generations. It's, it's actually the fact that if you're, you know, 
the position five years ago, or indeed children in particular aged five years ago compared to where they are today, even sometimes older siblings can be in a very different position. Can I just ask, it was the final question then, just um, again, it's very welcome that there's action being taken in terms of implementation, but just what cognizance in terms of the implementation as much as possible is being given to try to make sure that what is being put in place is as future-proofed as possible, because obviously we're in a fast-changing environment, and I think there would be a certain level of missed opportunity if simply we, we are very successfully everything is implemented and then found by the time it's implemented to a certain extent it's either out of date or alternatively at least is limited because there isn't that um, examination of what from a practical point of view should be done to sort of try and future-proof actions against, uh, against the crimes. Um, well, I mean, this is a very dynamic um, area you know, and, and you're right, it does change all the time and trying to stay ahead of the threats and um, as, as someone said earlier, you know, offenders and criminals are agile and innovative and they will find ways to exploit any situation um, to their advantage and it's trying to ensure that we have an assessment of the risks and, and CPSOG does um, have a work plan and a way of ensuring that we are keeping up to date with what's happening and that we are. So implementation is one thing, but we need to I don't, I don't think we can sit back and say, well, we've implemented those recommendations, that's the end of it. I mean, there's ongoing work, um, at the, uh, particularly, I think, at the SBNI um, CSE subgroup. And I wonder maybe if Teresa could give a bit of an update on how we try and stay ahead, working with police and social services, how we try and stay ahead of the threats. I think you're on mute, Teresa. Thank you, Cathy, and um, thank you, Chair and members. Um, first of all, um, can I just maybe give a bit um, of background in terms of the CSE subgroup in SBNI and its representation um, from the various agencies, just to give um, the committee some reassurance um, that this is absolutely multi-agency. The CSE subgroup within SBNI is chaired by PSNI Anthony McNally, Chief Superintendent. We have representation thereon from the Health and Social Care Board, the Health and Social Care Trusts. Um, we have a regional social work lead um, who sits in her own right, um, who manages five uh, social workers who are really quite specialist in this area um, of CSE and are co-located with the PSNI. We have representation from the Youth Justice Agency, from the Probation Board of Northern Ireland, from the Education Authority and representation from the NSPCC and Bernardo's. So the, the CSE subgroup has been really operational now from 2013, and it's a fairly dynamic group. It meets bi-monthly. Um, coming out of that, we have various task and finish groups that are associated with, um, I suppose, developments that are coming from um, those frontline staff, those practitioners, those police officers, as they are experiencing them, um, we connect in very strongly with um, the online safety forum that Anthony has just referenced that is also supported by the SBNI and um, Chief Inspector Gary MacDonald, who chairs the online safety forum, um, also sits on the CSC. CSE subgroup, um, and there is also crossover with the child protection subgroup, that is a group of statutory directors um, 
hosted by the SBNI as well. So we're trying to join all those dots across the different areas. We're trying to make sure that um, there is improved connectivity from um, those operational staff, those practitioners, middle managers, up to the various departments. Um, I have to say I'm a member of the CP subgroup, um, and I find that a very dynamic and a very useful group as well in terms of sharing what's happening um, across the different departments and operationally. And I've also um, accompanied the independent chair of the SBNI, Ms. Um, Bernie McNally, to the CP SOG. And um, I certainly can assure that that's a fairly interrogative um, and um, well, it's learning experience, but it's certainly um, we are absolutely accountable to that um, cross-departmental group. Okay. Yes, yes. Sorry, thank you. Yes. Okay. Thank you. Uh, Rachel. Thank you, Chair, and thank you to everybody um, for their answers so far. A number of my questions have been touched upon, but um, Teresa, just because you've mentioned it there about the group and feeding in with frontline services, and I had a question just with regard to the likes of NSPCC and those that are taking, I know just a, a friends that work within their helpline, and I know certainly over COVID, the number of calls had increased um, incredibly, which was extremely worrying and concerning, um, but on a variety of health protection issues, but um, specifically on CSE. So just inter how, does, how do the likes of those frontline services feed into um, the groups and then also into just the wider system, especially with the Department of Terms of Policy? Is there a mechanism for that to happen? Well, certainly, um, the, the the regional CSE um, lead sits on the CSE subgroup. She um, she's a lady called uh, Sheila Simons, who's a senior manager from the Southeastern Trust, and she directly supervises those those five. Um, CSE leads are based across the five local health and social care trusts and co-located in the police stations with the PSNI leads on CSE. Um, the the Chief Inspector MacDonald and, and, and Chief Superintendent McNally um, obviously are also in the CSE group. So we are receiving that information um, directly from those two key frontline practitioners. We have representation from um, the Education Authority who will feed up their sense of what is happening and their experience of what's happening within specific schools or sectors or um, whatever. Um, obviously, our, our uh, Deputy Chair is the NSPCC Director of the CSC subgroup, so um, he can feed into that what, what's around, and certainly Bernardo's who offer um, some therapeutic work, um, ther specialist therapeutic support for children who have experienced CSE um, are directly involved in that and can feed back. I suppose though the presence of all that, that kind of grouping also allows us to hook into what's happening nationally in terms of across the water um, and in terms of not only practical but academic research. We would have relationships with Bedfordshire University where um, Helen Beckett leads in this area, you know, um, and uh, she has been assisting with the development and the ongoing development 
development of um, the assessment tool that I know you referenced earlier in the previous presentation. So we're trying to ensure that we have the best practice that we can have and that that is benchmarked across other jurisdictions as well. I should also say that the online safety forum links directly into UCAS and we have um, one of our members from Education Authority actually sits in that UCAS group in London and um, th that direct that directly feeds back. We receive an update and we have a representation actually from UCAS on our forum as well. So we get an update at every meeting from UCAS directly and then from the Education Authority who sit on that group. Thank you. Um, Theresa, thank you. I really appreciate that um, information. Um, my next question is, I suppose, just bringing it right back to the Marshall Report. Um, it's probably one for the department. Um, the Marshall Report obviously published in 2014, as you've referenced, but were all those recommendations implemented? And if not, are they pieces of ongoing work? Um, or have they sort of been subsumed into the various other reports that we've had since 2014? Uh, no, there are um, open, still open recommendations from Marshall, and um, we, we can provide an update on that if if that would be helpful, Rachel. Um, you, uh, there, for those that remain open, implementation is underway, and you know, um, it, for example, there is a, an. an there's implementation underway in terms of cross-border information sharing protocol, and that's nearly complete. So I think health are leading on that, so we could get you an update on that. But there is a table that sets out the Marshall recommendations, which ones have been completed, and those that are still open. And um, I'll, I'll see if we can share that with the committee. Thank you. I think that would certainly be quite helpful just um, to, to know where we're at from you know from a number of years ago and in relation to what work is ongoing on that. And finally, for me, Chair, and it was just picked, mentioned there, um, we discussed the, deport, the importance of data and information sharing um, when it comes to CSE and child protection. And so Jenny had stated that a message from the top, um, as it were, plus training and awareness and support for, for practitioners and those working uh, with people on this, and ensuring that they know that GDPR or other data protection issues are not uh, not a barrier to information sharing when it comes to child protection and to CSE um, would be beneficial. So I suppose um, for Anthony, um, maybe it's, it's another one for you. Uh, would that be beneficial? Do you, do you think that that would be beneficial? And then for everybody here, um, do you see GDPR and data protection issues as a barrier to information sharing on CSE? Um, as it stands at the moment, um, or has there been any changes since this Sajini report was done, um, and, and any uh, anything that w you know maybe we need to work on as a committee? Do you know do we need to get a message from the top um, to say that that is that's not a barrier and the information sharing um, is okay in these circumstances? Uh, I, I have no concern with um, that message coming from the top. It, it, like always, it's welcome because it reinforces uh, the importance of such things. If uh, the Assembly or this committee were minded to do so, we'd, I'd certainly obviously be supportive of that. Uh, in terms of the sort of the practical answer to your question, in terms of, of GDPR as a buyer, I don't believe GDPR is a buyer at all. Um, I believe most people have a good understanding of that specific piece of legislation now, but um, I do believe that there is still, at times, operationally, um, a fear around information sharing, or sometimes just through 
um, new staff coming into post and maybe just different different interpretations of the of the information sharing agreements we do hear um, occasional concerns about it so as such um, from both the justice side and the, and the health side through Elise McDaniel we have met to, to, to talk through those there is a revised information sharing agreement if it's not signed off it's very soon to be so with um, health and police in this very specific area around child abuse and information sharing and that and our intention is always to um, work, work that through in terms of uh, making sure the practitioners understand it and indeed by way of reassurance specifically on CSE because it's one aspect of, of child abuse um, the PSNI um, and health colleagues um, the five uh, leads within the trusts as was referred to by Teresa were actually all together yesterday uh, in Garneval just catching up you know it was the first meeting pre-COVID face to face which was fantastic um, again you know when staff change it's difficult to build relations as we all know um, just to, to reaffirm our professional boundaries and commitment to work with each other so there will always be day to day challenges um, but certainly I don't believe there's a fire within the legislation um, and it really is about just good partnership working um, and, I, and I think that, that should be fine Rachel, if I could just add that information sharing it is um, on the CPTOG work plan. It's one of the priorities. So um, the Department of Health are leading on that. So that's probably the work that Anthony is referring to, that that will go to CPSOG. So there should be something coming out that will be CPSOG um, endorsed. Okay. Thank you. Is that all, Rachel? Yes. That's it. I could go on all day, Chair, but I'll not. Okay, thank you. I don't want to not give you the opportunity. So, and then finally, uh, the Deputy Chair, Linda. Thank you, Chair. Like Rachel, I have um, so many questions that I'm really struggling to limit them. Just a couple of just um, points to make at the start. The I, I was glad to hear about the link in with education authority and and the fact that they're feeding stuff up and, I'm, and I would hope that you know as well as schools and I would imagine it is coming through youth services as well because they link in very much with those um, most vulnerable and attached children particularly youth services that go out and engage do the street work and, and that kind of of stuff so I think that that's really important but I think it's important also that um, you know that there's there's feeding both both ways in terms of information so that, that that works both ways so if there is examples of best practice in particular and what you're talking about and again you've said that the the education authority are the link there with across the water if there's best practice in other places then we need to make sure that we're using that we need to make sure that youth services are getting any information around um information sharing and, and the different tools that they might be able to use um i think that that is is vital and across the board, not just youth services. Obviously, it's for the voluntary and, and community sector as well. Right across the the board, I think that that is is vital. Um, safeguarding board and, and in terms of CP, dog, I do think that there's there does seem to be a fair good rep representation. And to be fair to yourselves, you were the first ones to raise with me around Operation Encompass, and I wouldn't let go of it until I got it in somewhere. And we finally got it into the domestic abuse bill, which I was really happy. But again, that was that information sharing was the problem there. It was the blockage. So there is a real concern around information sharing and a vital. So just in terms of, of 
I mean, your own piece of work and, and what you're doing around that. If there is things that we need to be doing, and I said this at the time around Operation Encompass, the things that we can do or need to be doing, you know, that's what we're here for. You know, j just contact us. You don't have to wait until a committee meeting. There's no problem with contacting the committee directly and writing or whatever way that you feel is necessary and saying, here's the problem and information sharing in this sphere. Help us. See what you can do. Find a way around it. I do think that's that's vitally important. And just on that, Anthony, this is probably one for you. We're talking about information sharing ac across de departments and organisations, but the the report um, was concerned in that we're high risk of CSE regarding child has been identified. Important information intelligence isn't being reported anywhere on a police system. So if that child comes to attention, say, for example, that, that the previous history that there's concern around a particular child and then that child goes missing on a particular day or night and, you know, local community um, police officers are sent out to, to find that child, find the child, where were you, with friends, okay, that's fine, return to home, safe and sound. No link up there, nothing. Is there anything being done to, to address that? Because... That I think is 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 vitally important. If 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 within the PSNA, there isn't that information sharing or ability to do that, then how are we supposed to do it effectively across organisations? So, I'll, I'll probably let Anthony come in on that first, and then come back to the other questions if that's okay. Yeah, sure. Thanks. Question. I mean, I suppose first of the sort of the strategic information sharing. I mean, I, I do um, like as has been said here. You know that the extension of the the CP SOG to having that subgroup and therefore police and, and health attendants and so on is so important. And we're very grateful that 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 link is there. I do think it makes that connectivity between the operational and the strategic much better for us all to to feed into. And um, in terms of the the operational aspect of your question. Um, We've done a significant amount of work um, in the past, well, it is 12 months, actually, um, since that report was released, time flies. Um, in terms of the operational side of it, uh, policing, uh, the way CSE was structured was we, we are co-located, or sorry, we have co-terminus boundaries with the five health trusts as our <coughs> partner within public protection. But we had CSE officers within each of those areas their supervision was local, so there was no sort of coordinated work <laughs> within public protection ranks. That has changed. I have implemented one inspector and two detective sergeants who have that helicopter view of what's happening across Northern Ireland. And indeed, they're held to account by me at a daily morning management meeting at half nine as to what has happened in Northern Ireland in respect of those children who are identified at risk of CSE. That happens every day now. And then on a monthly basis, we have a performance meeting around well, how many children have we safeguarded? How many people have we arrested as a result of this? How many notices have we taken out in terms of comms, ratios, and those type of preventative orders um, that we have in play? At a very sort of operational level, those things are in place now. I can expand that into the partnership arena because, as I mentioned, the five key leads within health and social care are so important in respect of this. And again, um, since COVID has lifted, the benefits of being able to work more collaboratively are, are very much in play. So not only did I have my CSE officers and the health and social care officers together about two weeks ago up in New Forge, we also had offender managers within PSNI um, and representatives from our, our rape investigations because, again, some of these children are bordering on that age and some of the people are offended. 
part offending on you know potentially children and those within that adult environment. So, and um, that, that was operational recommendation three, I believe. Linda, from memory, I'll have a quick look at the, um, the operational. <laughs> yeah, within six months, the PSNI implemented a consistent approach. So, so as far as I'm concerned, we have done that, uh, and we have a really robust and good structure. And hopefully, that reassures you on a very operational day-to-day -day basis. It does. I appreciate that. Um, that's very helpful. I mean, again, I know that we have some really good people and all of the organisations who have been really good at working together for a long, long time. It's, it's just that we're, we're only now at the probably at the top level and cross departmentally catching up and in some areas not, not catching up. Um, Linda, can yeah. I just add, it would be remiss of me to say, so, so Kieran and I um, also now I have a, a coordinated um, meeting together and, and we've agreed in terms of reference around serious set brain. Um, and one of the challenges that was um, put forward by St. Jenny was quite rightly around the quality of files and how those files are passed to the PPS. So again, for reassurance, where there is serious sexual crime, Karen and I are now meeting on a frequent basis and making sure that we are doing all we can to, to make sure our staff are working collaboratively with file builds and all those things to, to make this as swift and effective as possible to get justice for the victims in a timely manner. Okay, I appreciate that, Anthony. Just speaking to Kieran, and that my next question is is for yourself. It's just it's, I did ask this question of, of Jackie Durkin around the PPS and their understanding of the issue, you know, and, and wider than PPS. Whenever I was speaking to Jackie, to be honest, I was asking how wide did this problem go? Was it general within the judiciary? And that's the you know the understanding of the issue, the myth busting, the training around what you know child sexual exploitation is, and particularly around those issues of, you know, young adults who display inappropriate behaviour themselves, that it's almost the, the, the child's fault, you know? Yeah. So, and, and I know this is a really complicated and complex issue, and without proper um, training, without proper education, it is difficult to understand exactly what child, child sexual exploitation is, but it's, it's vital. That the people who are going to be, you know, bringing forward prosecutions understand better than anybody else. I'm just wondering what has been done in relation to that, or, or is it an ongoing piece of work? Well, I agree absolutely. The the importance of tackling those myths and those uh, pre misconceptions um, that, that that are out there. Um, in terms of what's been done, uh, the the unit I have up the, the serious crime unit, which was set up in 2016, uh, we major part of our work is serious sexual um, offences and contained within that would be the um, uh, the child sexual exploitation cases, those those ones that come into us. And I would say, and you might say, I, might, I would say this anyway, but I would say, and I think the report did say that there was good understanding within our unit of all of those sorts of issues and they don't, um, they don't impact on, on our decision making uh, adversely. We accept, and we accepted when the report came out, that we need to support all our prosecutors um, across the organisation to make sure that perhaps if they're dealing with, for instance, uh, a victim of CSE who might be a suspect in a case, um, that they understand that um, their behaviours might be influenced by the exploitation or by the, 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 the circumstances they find themselves in. So we're developing that guidance. Um, we've got a, a range of things. We've got. Uh, proposed amendments or code for prosecutors. We've got a, a draft safeguarding policy, and we're going to develop that guidance for prosecutors. 
as to the wider legal world, um, probably, you know, I can only maybe speak for the prosecution service. Mm-hmm. Certainly it is encountered uh, when we bring forward prosecutions. Um, Gillen, you'll be very aware of, has a large section dedicated to tackling what, he, what are described rape myths, but a lot of those can, can cross over into the CSE mm-hmm. world as well. So, um, you know, we're doing a lot of work. We're doing work with other stakeholders and, and with the department, Katie, um, around the Gillen implementation. But as far as CSE, I think it is very important that we tackle those sort of behaviours that um, perhaps a jury or perhaps maybe prompted by, by some of the way in which defences are conducted might make misconceptions about that we tackle those. And that's what we're trying to do. Okay, I appreciate that. Karen, thank you for your for your answer. It was just my final point, and it'll, it'll be no surprise to anybody on this committee because I, I probably say the word education more than I say justice in this committee, but I, I don't want there to be victims. I don't want there to be perpetrators. I want us to educate our young people so that they don't end up being either. And I've already, the chair has already agreed that we will write to the education minister in relation to what has been done around education on this issue. But I suppose education goes wider than that. So what is being done or what is, you know, is being developed in terms of educating us all as to what child sexual exploitation is? Because if I wasn't on this committee, would I be as informed? I don't know. You know, if I'm being honest about it, I don't know if I would. Um. I suppose it's something that I probably would have an interest in anyway, so I might be, but no, I'm not sure that I would. And if somebody in my position who is in the Assembly and who is making policy and legislation and, you know, trying to, to be part of protecting children and creating a better society for everybody doesn't understand it, then how is everybody else out there supposed to understand it? So that's probably something for the department, but I think there's a piece of work to be done there around, um, you know, and... I suppose in a simplified way, and I know that this is not a simple issue, it's extremely complex, so how do you make it simplified? But there has to be some way of doing some kind of a, a really effective campaign out there so that people understand it when they see it. You know, the same as we have to do around domestic abuse, to understand it when you see it, but around child abuse, to understand it when you see it, coercive control, you know. I, I think that we need to do something around understanding it when we see it. Um, and to thank you, I'm happy to, to take um, some of the points you've raised there. I think certainly um, Kieran's referred to um, some of the work that the Gillen team are taking forward on this. And, and I think you're right to point out that um, when we talk about education and early intervention and prevention, it's important that we don't limit that just to schools and curriculum, but there is an important role there to play. And you'll be aware um, that the minister um, has met with the Department of Education previously to talk about getting a, a piece of work taken forward that looks more specifically at what RSE in our schools looks like and, and thinks about both in terms of um, sexual offences and, and the issues around consent, but also healthy relationships more generally. And I do think that that will be a good starting point in terms of filtering through on a more societal level around that sort of bottom-up approach to healthy relationships, consent and, and all of those issues. Um, Gillen also, and apologies, <clears throat> I don't lead on the implementation of Gillen, but I'm aware through broader work on sexual harm um, of some of the, the, the recommendations in there, and there is a recommendation in there around raising awareness um, of the issue of sexual offences more generally, but that will, of course, encompass child sexual offences, and I think there are some good lessons potentially to be learned around 
um, the forthcoming campaign on coercive control that you referenced and what works actually in terms of shifting attitudes and, and raising awareness on these um, very important but as you say quite discreet issues that people might not might just not be in the public discourse and sometimes it's simply a case of getting it into the public discourse and getting it talked about more widely uh, and more broadly so i suspect there will be some lessons from that campaign that then can be fed into the work the gillen team are doing around awareness around sexual offenses more generally and um, certainly we've had some successful campaigns in the past it's not this needs to be a sort of multi-pronged approach so you've got talk to children early and um, but get the societal discourse and messaging going as well because until there's a conversation about it it is something that tends to sort of stay behind closed doors or as you say something that people don't think about until they are directly confronted with it um there's also i think for the more professional element of it that you that you referenced um kieran has talked about what the pps are doing the gillen implementation team also have a training subgroup which is led by the ceo of victim support which is looking at what are the training needs right across all of the various justice agencies, including the judiciary, to think about those issues around sexual offences, myths, jargon busting, all of those types of issues. Again, um, not specific to young people, but will incorporate issues specifically around sexual offences for young people. So I, I completely agree, and I think there's a multi-pronged approach needed, and I think there's some good lessons we can take from other areas of the department that might help here as well. Thank you very much to all of you for your presentations and um, just going to take this opportunity to pick you up on what you just said around public discourse because I've been thinking about this as this conversation has ha has been taking place and I, I really wish that our media out there would stop picking up on some of the nonsense and start picking up on issues like this because if they were reporting on this and we were having these types of conversations and it was part of the public discourse and was out there on media platforms, I think that that would make a real difference. So maybe if any of them are listening in to the committee here today, they'll pick that up. Um, and I don't really care how they do it, as long as they do it, if, they, if they're getting this conversation going, and obviously appropriately. But I, I do think it would be really effective. I think you're right. That's exactly how we will, will make a real difference if, if people are, are hearing about it and talking about it. So thank you to all of you, and thank you, Chair. Thank you, Linda, and thank you to members for their questions. And, and on that final note, I think there is something, maybe, Cathy, that would be interesting to know uh, from the department's point of view. That we have seen other departments who have carried out very successful media uh, campaigns. Some have been very hard-hitting, uh, whether it was in relation to uh, the, the activities of uh, paramilitaries or whether it's in relation to domestic abuse or speeding or whatever. And maybe. There is a consideration that should be given to uh, a media campaign because, as Linda says, uh, we all need to be educated, re-educated and informed in regards to what is going on in our communities and in our society. And I think if people saw that in a very uh, stark way, sadly, I think it would have a different perspective in terms of maybe the information that would be made available to actually bring the perpetrators to, to justice, but also to give comfort to victims that there is uh, this is not an issue that's being ignored by society. So, can I thank you all for your collective and individual contributions to this, uh, to Cathy, to Katie, uh, to uh, Anthony, to Karen, uh, and to Teresa.
thank you all for your time uh, today, and we look forward to continuing to work with you uh, in the time ahead. Thank you very much. Thank you, Chair. Thank you. Okay, members, uh, I think there was nothing coming out of that. Uh, we've agreed that we'd write the, the, the minister, so that's the only. Yeah, we've agreed to, yeah, we've agreed to um, ask the Jenny for their views and comments yes. on the action yeah. plan. So when we get that back, the okay. might want to consider. Okay, thank you, members. Answer. If you will indulge me now for a few moments, I said I'd stuff to read earlier on. I've even more to read now uh, because we have a few statutory rules and, and a few issues. So if you just bear with me, we will go through this uh, as uh, efficiently as we possibly can. And that brings us to item 7 on the agenda, which is the Police Crime Sentencing and Courts Bill Proposed Legislative Consent Motion. The Committee has been considering the provisions within this particular piece of Legislative Consent Motion from the Assembly and will be required for some time now and has sought the views of the Northern Human Rights Commission and the Attorney-General, including on compatibility with the European Human Rights uh, Convention. The meeting on the 27th of May, the committee noted the response from the Department to the issues highlighted by the Human Rights Commission and the Attorney-General and agreed to refer the responses to the Northern Ireland Human Rights Commission for further views and comments. Further response has been received from the Commission and it highlights some areas that the committee may wish to consider further or seek further clarification on, and draws attention to several areas that the response from the Department has not addressed. The committee has also agreed to request details of any engagement either the Department or the Home Office has had with the Northern Ireland Office, the Department of Justice in the Republic, or the powers to seize evidence relating to the location of human remains outside of a criminal investigation, including the potential implications on the work of the Independent Commission for the Location of Victims' Remains, and whether there is a possibility of overlap in jurisdiction. The Department has indicated that the Home Office has not engaged with the NIO or the Department of Justice in the Republic, but is of the view that the draft provisions do not impede or undermine the work of the Victims' Remains uh, Commission. The Department has brought the provisions to the attention of both departments, and they have not made any comment and have not raised any issues regarding potential implications. The Department of Justice has also provided an update on the current provision or the current position regarding the proposed legislation consent motion following its consideration by the Executive. The Executive has agreed for the provisions relating to the amendments to the Crime Overseas. Uh, Productions Order Act 2019, Enforcement of Scottish Sexual Harm Prevention Orders and Sexual Risk Orders in Northern Ireland, Statutory Authority for the National Driver Offender Retaining Scheme and powers for the police to apply to the courts for an order to obtain information about the location of human remains outside of a criminal investigation to be included in the LCM. It has not agreed to the inclusion of the measures relating to the extradition of information from mobile devices to be included at this stage, but may return to the issue when the Code of Practice has been drafted and consulted on. The Home Office is also intending to table an amendment to the Bill at the common stage to bring electronic money institutions and electronic payment institutions within the scope uh, of the POCA account freezing and the powers in respect of 
the Northern Ireland and respect to Northern Ireland to ensure that the law enforcement is able to quickly and efficiently freeze the proceeds of crime on the terrorist property, not just held in bank and building accounts, uh, but also when in e-money and payment institution accounts. Members will recall that there was insufficient time to bring forward an LCM in respect of the Financial Services Bill to implement this provision in Northern Ireland. And the Minister has asked that the Home Secretary identify a, a suitable alternative legislative vehicle to do this. The Minister intends to lay the legislative consent motion or memorandum for police crime, sentencing and courts bill at the uh, end of August for debate in September. And what we want to do is to seek the agreement of the members to refer the response from the Human Rights Commission to the Department for further response uh, to highlight uh, the issues. Agreed? Great. Okay. And if whether there are whether the members are content to note the response from the department providing additional information and the updated position regarding the provisions to be covered in the LCM or whether any further information or clarification is required or whether they wish to submit any views or comments in advance of considering the legislative consent motion in September. Rachel? Thank you for that. Um, I'm just—I was reading through it, and there's just there's so many issues that I just don't see answers to or, or full answers to, and maybe I'm just not um, understanding it properly. But um, the issues that we raised last time with regard to the um, uh, consent motion and the Attorney General codes of practice—it wasn't being addressed. It, it, it doesn't. It, the issues raised all capable of being addressed. Are they going to be addressed, or are they capable of being addressed? Because those are two different things for me, and, and within the human remains aspect, um, it said the department's response saying it hasn't engaged with the NIO or the Department of Justice Ireland, but it has brought the provisions to their attention. So, is it they haven't engaged, or is it has it that um, bringing the attention the uh, no engagement? I'm just a bit confused um, of, of, of how you can not engage but also bring something to their attention. And also, if there has been no engagement and no views from either um, either the Home Office or sorry the NIO or the Department of Justice Ireland, how has the view been formed in the department that there's no impediment on their uh, you know on on each each organisation? So, did, if, did the department ask for a response or allow issues to be raised, um, especially if there hasn't been any engagement? Um, so I'm just I'm just a bit confused about where that view has come from. If there has been no engagement and no correspondence, um, because again it's not the same um, in terms of the uh, Northern Ireland human rights response as well. There's been a number of areas as already been covered, um, which I would have concerns still about, and um, without getting without having further information um, from the department and a response to the Northern Ireland Human Rights Commission, I wouldn't be able to be of an opinion on the LCM until we had that. Kristen? Um, yes, I think, Rachel, what's happened is it's the Home Office who hasn't engaged with the NIO or Department of Justice Ireland, so the department has brought the provisions to the attention of both those departments, um, and what they've said is they've not made any comment and have not raised any issues, but we can go back and clarify that again. Um, I'm not sure whether, um, given the, the questions you have, Rachel, whether it would be easier to have the officials back up um, 
to answer any further questions we have at the beginning of September or whether we can write in the meantime and then depending on the response. Well, Rachel, if, if, if you want it, and I'm not asking uh, you to do uh, our homework, but uh, those... Really are <laughs> but really I am. But if you did, if, if you dropped uh, a note into us, what we would do then is we would just forward that on to the department and then see what that response was before uh, they lay the, um, the LCM in August, and then if we think we need to, we can bring them in September before that happens. No, that, that's fine. And I have all these questions already written down. See, I knew that I was the case. I, I, I just forward them <laughs> on. I, I ha happily do your homework for you. Okay, thank you. Appreciate that. Okay, if there's nothing else on that, then we'll move. Don't think there's any other member. Okay, thank you. Item eight is the SR on the Parole Commissioner's Amendment Rules, Northern Ireland 21. And that's at pages uh, 282 to 307. <clears throat> and at the meeting of the 19th of November in 2020, the committee agreed that it was content with a proposal for a statutory rule which is subject to negative resolution procedure to amend Rule 22 of the Parole Commissioner's Northern Ireland Rules 2009. The amendment will introduce provisions which allow registered victims or other parties where it is considered to be in the public interest to receive uh, summaries of parole decisions. At the meeting of the 10th of June in 2021, the committee noted an update from the Department on the proposed statutory rule, which indicated that following further consideration of the matter, it had removed the requirement on members of the public to justify receipt of a summary of reasons on public interest grounds. The adjustment recognises that the requirement was not aligned to the commitment to the principle of open justice, and the rule is now based on the presumption that the public interest test is met, save where the Commissioner does not consider on uh, exemption grounds only that it is in the public interest to do so, i.e. the presumption will be in favour of the release of information. The Department also advised that it had delayed finalising the proposed statutory rule until now to take account of any relevant developments in two ongoing legal challenges. The Committee agreed to request further information on what engagement the Department had undertaken with key stakeholders on the changes made since it had considered the proposal for the rule back in November 2020 and the views received, particularly from victim support and whether it was content. The Committee also requested clarification of when the outcome of the legal challenge is expected and, if necessary, what scope there is for review and amendment of the statutory rule. The Department has responded advising that it has engaged with representatives from the victims' organisation schemes and victim support NI on the proposed change and in relation to the reviewing current systems and processes to ensure that victims are aware of their rights to request and receive a summary of reasons for the parole decisions. The Chief Parole Commissioner has also confirmed he is content with the change. The Department has also provided an update on the provision relating to the two, the two legal challenges. The Department has also indicated that it will be bringing forward another proposed amendment in Rule 22 in a separate statutory rule. This amendment is needed to make it clear that the process to provide a summary of reasons can be undertaken by a single Commissioner, thus ensuring value for money in relation 
to the transactional costs. The Department will provide the SL1 to the Committee for consideration uh, at its meeting on 1 July. The examiner of statutory rules has no issue with, uh, to raise with regards to the technical aspects of the rule. So just to ask members, uh, are you content with the statutory rule in light of the additional information provided by the department? Content? Great. Okay. So if the, if the committee is content with the statutory rule, can I put the question? The committee for justice considered the statutory rule. 2021-138, the Parole Commissioner's Amendment Rules, Northern Ireland, 2021, and has no objection to the rule. Agreed? Agreed. Thank you. Uh, amendment 9, sorry, Agenda 9, the next steps for the McLeod Remedy for Judicial and Police Pension Schemes. And that information is at page 309 to 406 of the meeting pack for today. The Department has provided an update on the next steps to deliver the McLeod remedy for the judicial and police pension schemes. Both schemes will require primary legislation, and the Committee has already received information on the Finance Minister's proposal to extend the powers in the Public Service Pensions and Judicial Offices Bill at Westminster to Northern Ireland by way of a legislative consent motion. The Committee has previously agreed that it was content with the Department of Justice proposals in respect of the judicial pensions reform and agreed in principle with the proposal to proceed by way of an LCM. The police pension scheme requires corresponding secondary legislation to amend regulations to deliver the remedy and remove age discrimination, and the Department of Justice is responsible for bringing these forward. It is expected that the secondary legislation will be delivered in two phases to implement the prospective remedy by April. 2022 and the respective remedy by October 2023. And this is just to ask members to note the next steps of the implementation of the McLeod remedy for the police pension scheme and judicial pension scheme, unless there's any further information or clarification that we require. Okay, thank you. Item 10, the review of the hate crime legislation in Northern Ireland. The Department of Justice response to the recommendations, and that is at pages 408 to 538. And Judge Desmond Marion published his report on the review of hate crime legislation on the 1st of December 2020 and made 34 recommendations. The review considered whether the existing legislation represents the most effective approach for the justice system to deal with criminal conduct motivated by hate malice, ill will or prejudice, including hate crime and abuse which takes place online. The Department has now provided its initial response to the report findings, the recommendations, and has indicated that none of the recommendations have been rejected at this stage. The Department has set out a dedicated hate crime branch uh, to progress the work, and following further policy development, it will be in a position to publish a public consultation on proposals for hate crime legislation in Northern Ireland, which will inform a consolidated uh, hate crime bill to be scheduled into the legislative programme for, you will be glad to know, the next Assembly. The Department will keep the committee informed uh, of the key developments, including legislative time frame. And I saw you all have a bit of a, a moment there when you thought there was another piece of legislation 
But there is another piece coming, uh, I understand, uh, and we'll maybe, we'll maybe conclude with that and, uh, before the end. Uh, and just to remind members that Judge Marion will be attending the committee on the, April, on the 8th of July to discuss his report and the Department's uh, response. So it's whether or not there are any other further information uh, or clarification that we require in advance of Judge Marion's attendance on the 8th of July. Linda. Thank you, Chair. To is it the Department's intent to carry out the public health before? Yes. So, uh, I, I, I think so. Is that right, Kristen? Um, I'm not sure. We'll, we will. Oh, just clarify that. We'll, yes. We'll clarify that. So the other, the other period is right. Uh, sorry, there's bad feedback. Other people are getting. It. Alex says states that the recommendation the definition of sectarianism considered as in conjunction with the report. So, are they going to sit their hands and do nothing? Or will working on it in the meantime, you know, because that would be a concern. I don't think they should be waiting on fact. Um, given all of our experience, that that could be a long wait. So I, the, I think we, we missed the first part of that, Linda. Uh, there's back chair. I don't know what. Yeah, there's something has happened. Uh, can you? I tell you what you do. If you just drop us. Uh, can you hear me now? Yes, we can hear you now. So it's just to ask the department that the recommendations around re re creating a definition of sectarianism, they're saying that that will need to be considered in conjunction with FICT report. Um, I don't think they should be sitting on their hands waiting on that. I would like to think that there will be work carried being carried out in the meantime. So just can we ask for confirmation from the department that they will be working on this and not sitting waiting on the FICT report? That could be a substantial weight. Yeah, okay. Well, we'll seek clarification from them on that. Anything else? Thank you. Rachel? Thanks, Chair. Um, it was just to pick, on, uh, pick up on what Linda had said there. It was just, um, obviously, I, I don't have any knowledge about what's going on with FICT, but it's been referenced um, quite a bit in the, in the report. So it was along the similar lines in terms of waiting for that to be published. I know that um, that was due last year, um, but I don't know where that is. But do we have any idea about when FICT's going to be published? Um, and also, if there is a timeline for the department to work to for the next steps that are in that um, document. Um, I was part of a group that recently met with the minister um, as part of the APG and ethnic minorities on Tuesday morning, um, which was good to get an overview from the minister. But in terms of um, just the department's work on next steps, uh, mindful that we can't get uh, hate crime legislation coming in this assembly mandate. Fully appreciate that it needs a standalone bill, um, but just to, to see if there are any timelines that the department are working to would be useful before that briefing with Judge Marnon. Okay, thank you. We will progress that. Thanks, uh, Rachel. That concludes that. That brings us to item 11, uh, which is the phase two of the review of the PSNI injury and duty. And that's at pages 540 to 562. And at the meeting on the 25th of February, the committee considered an update on how the Department of Justice was taking forward the recommendations 
in the Northern Ireland Audit Report in relation to the engine duty scheme for police officers. The committee was also informed on the 27th of May that the Minister of Finance was launching a consultation on the Northern Ireland Civil Service Injury Benefit Scheme, which applies to prison staff. Uh, a phased approach is being adopted to addressing the recommendation of Phase 1, covering short-term action to mitigate offset issues, is now complete. And the Department has provided a summary of the next steps with indicative timings for Phase 2, which covers uh, a thorough examination of the other issues in the report and has also confirmed that it will accommodate the Northern Ireland Policing Board's request to incorporate a review of the ill health retirement process. The Department will brief the Committee on any changes proposed to the current scheme and seek the Committee's approval to proceed to a stakeholder consultation in due course. And it's just to note the update to provide it to us and whether or not there's any other information that we require. I don't see any members indicating. Uh, Linda? Just a very quick point, Chair. I don't want to keep you from getting something big before the LCJ comes in. Okay. If we could just forward that on to the Policing Board just to ensure that they're content that what's yes. been said there does look 100% to me, but just to ensure that what's been said there, they're content. That is, in fact, the case. Yep. Okay. Agreed to do that. Yes, that's fine. Uh, item 12, review of non-fatal strangulation legislation, which is... The proposed consultation, which is on pages 564 to 606, and the Department is proposing to undertake a public consultation on the review of non-fatal strangulation legislation, and has provided a copy of the draft consultation document. The consultation focuses on the need or otherwise uh, to legislate on this discrete issue and seeks views on a number of options. And it's just to seek the views of members on whether they are content to note the proposed consultation and consider the matter further when the results of the proposed way forward are available, or whether they wish to submit any views or comments at this stage or require any further information. Linda. Sorry, two very quick questions on this one, too, Chair. Just um, if we can ask if they have. If the reference group have had sight of the actual consultation, I mean, it looks like they've, they've had a good reference group in place in developing it, but have they actually had sight of it and said that's a good consultation? And when do they intend to consult? Yes. That's it. Yeah, okay. Yeah, get a, a time frame. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Uh, and then item 13 is the Department of Justice June monitoring round return, and that's at pages 608 to 660. Uh, officials attended a meeting on the 3rd of June uh, to outline the Department's June monitoring round position and the 2021 provisional outturn, and the Department has now provided a copy of its June monitoring round return that they, were recently that they submitted to the Department of Finance. In response from the Department to the questions raised by the committee following the oral evidence session, is due by the 1st of July for next meeting. So the Department has also responded to the Committee's request for further information on the areas included in the Cross-Justice Recovery Bid, which was part of the recent 2021-22 uh, public expenditure COVID-19 exercise and the Department's accruing resources of almost £52 million for 2020-2021. Just to note the correspondence and whether there's any further queries or 
information that we require from the department. Okay, noted. Thank you. And that brings us to the break until two o'clock. So those on Starleaf can now go boil the kettle, uh, and we will now go into the rotunda. Those of us that are in uh, the Senate and enjoy sandwiches provided by the Assembly. Not that we would ever want to uh, sort of uh, lord it over you, but that's what we're going to do anyway. But thank you. Uh, really do appreciate your help uh, in getting us through that. And we'll see you all been well at two o'clock. Thank you. Thank you. the Chamber. Programme signed. For your help, and I'm sure you've enjoyed a cup of tea or whatever refreshments you had. Uh, in your offices or wherever it is you are. So uh, we're going to resume and uh, welcome to this uh, afternoon session. And that brings us to uh, the last meeting uh, that Sir Declan will come in his role uh, to the committee. And of course, we're delighted to have the right honourable Sir Declan Morgan, the Lord Chief Justice for Northern Ireland in attendance with us today. And I want to just at the outset uh, say, Sir Declan, a word of appreciation and thanks to you for your years of public service, uh, for your contribution. I believe I'm right in saying that you were the first Lord Chief Justice to come before a committee of the Assembly. And I think uh, your bravery uh, uh, and, and your fortitude <laughs> in relation to that is much appreciated. But thank you for and for your openness. And obviously, uh, the judiciary is something which people have varying degrees of opinion of. Uh, but I think that you have taken uh, very uh, bold steps in, in years past to try and demystify some of the issues around uh, the judiciary and the judicial process, and that has been uh, very much appreciated. We also welcome uh, Mandy Kilpatrick, the Principal Private Secretary, to uh, the Lord Chief Justice. You're very welcome. And so, Sir Declan, without any further ado, uh, we're just going to allow you the opportunity to uh, say uh, a few words to us, and then, uh, members, I have no doubt uh, will have uh, some parting questions to ask. Uh, on this uh, occasion. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, um, uh, Mr Chairman. Um, I'm uh, um, feeling in very good humour as a result of your generous remarks. Whether the humour remains by the end of the <laughs> evening, we'll just have to see. Uh, um, I, I provided you with a, a, a bullet point, as it were, paper of what I'm going to cover, uh, which I hope is uh, helpful in terms of uh, following it. I think one of the biggest lessons uh, and one of the biggest uh, positive outcomes that we've had as a result of the pandemic has been uh, the collaborative working that has occurred between the different elements of the justice system um, as a result of the pandemic and the need to pull together uh, to understand each other's difficulties and what each can contribute to the way in which uh, we can make the system of the administration of justice better in Northern Ireland. Um, at the start, we uh, reduced down to five hubs, um, and in those hubs, effect effectively through until about the beginning of May 2020, um, we were only able to do emergency business. But we've now got to the stage where um, the vast majority of magistrates' courts are now open. 
Um, we've had additional magistrates' court sittings implemented back in August 2020. Um, they obviously continue um, throughout the year. Um, and there has been a fantastic effort by the district judges uh, in that tier uh, to attack the backlog. And although it's not by any means uh, um, uh, completed, certainly uh, the uh, presiding district judges indicated to me that by the end of this year, um, the issues connected with the backlog will uh, have been dealt with. Um, and the, the department has looked at the figures as well and uh, is of the same view. So that is, I think, very encouraging. Um, the story is somewhat different in the Crown Courts. Um, in the Crown Courts, um, we weren't able to get back to work until August uh, 2000, and then um, we had a total of eight courts available to us. Now, when we, uh, in pre-COVID times, we would normally have had 13 Crown Court sitting, one High Court and 12 um, County Court or Crown Court judges. Um, and uh, um, it meant that although we were uh, um, able to do some of the work, we certainly were doing that in a context where the backlog was increasing rather than decreasing. Uh, and that really remained the case um, until we got uh, additional courts, um, and we now are back up to 13 courts available to us um, uh, from about the end of April 2021. And I would anticipate from 2021 on through until the end of September 2021 that we will see um, the, the Crown Court broadly holding its own against a background of a steady increase uh, over the norm in terms of cases coming forward from the Magistrates' Court. As the backlog moves through the Magistrates' Court uh, from the PPS, then um, uh, yet more cases go through. And the rate of uh, receipts at the moment is actually higher than the, uh, the, the norm that there's been. Um, we have, and the, again, the Department has uh, agreed uh, that the number of courts available to us will increase to 15 from October 2021, and that's the stage at which we begin to see the backlog decreasing, uh, where we will be disposing of more um, than is actually received. And I'm anxious to ensure that we uh, attack that um, as quickly as we can uh, because uh, um, of the related matter of um, committal reform coming uh, down the track, as it were, um, possibly as early as late 2022. Um, we were fortunate in one sense uh, going into the, uh, the um, COVID period that we didn't have the backlog uh, that England and Wales ha had. Um, Mr Justice McFarland, as he now is, was the recorder of Belfast, and he did a fantastic job um, of uh, managing the Crown Court lists, and they were in the, really in the best shape that they'd been um, for some years. Um, the, the, the position at the moment is that um, we probably have pretty close to 50 per cent more uh, cases waiting for hearing uh, than we had uh, at um, the 1st of April 2020. So that gives a sense of the backlog, but the numbers we're talking about are 583 on the 1st of April 2020, and we're probably now up to something close to 900 uh, um, waiting to go. Um, 
we've had some experience of what to do about a backlog because um, mm. some of you may even be old enough to remember that there was a, a difficulty over legal aid funding uh, in the justice system. Um, and uh, for a period of about 10 months, uh, from May 2015 to February 2016, no Crown Court cases uh, uh, were um, uh, moved. Now, um, we dealt with that backlog, but we've learnt from it as well. One of the uh, pieces of learning was that there was a tendency to take the low-lying fruit and take the easy cases in order to get the figures down and start to make it start to look as though it was um, um, sorting the problem out. But beneath all of that, there was a tale of um, particularly um, um, sexual offence cases uh, which were not dealt with because they were more likely to be contests and were more complicated to bring forward. And we have learnt from that and we have been very anxious to um, recognise the risks of attrition um, uh, in that area so that we now have we now prioritize uh, the cases on the basis of um, sex offence cases custody cases and children's cases as being the uh, three um, um, areas uh, where we need to be sure that we're listing um, uh, as much as we can in the circumstances and those are um, their priorities and all of that is designed of course to maintain confidence um, in the justice system um, on the civil and family side, the family side actually, um, uh, which as it happens, the senior family judge was Mrs Justice Keegan, who will be my successor, but the family side has actually done ex exceptionally well in terms of um, uh, ensuring that uh, uh, family business was, uh, was dealt with. Um, there were always some cases that had to be put off for a period uh, and that required some innovation in terms of dealing with them. But there are very significant signs of recovery there and uh, a, a pattern which shows that broadly family business was being disposed of pretty close to uh, as, uh, at the same level as it was coming in. Um, we've also, uh, I think, uh, been fortunate on the civil side with the personnel who have been involved, Mr Justice Horner, um, on the uh, commercial side, um, uh, Madam Justice McBride in Chancery, um, and Mr. Justice McAlinden in the High Court, um, and I mean they also uh, have uh, done an excellent job of ensuring that uh, the business is, is uh, recovering, and we now have these lists back into um, uh, shape. Um, certainly, uh, for any significant cases that need to be progressed, they will be progressed. Uh, prime example of that might be um, that uh, gentle dispute between Messrs. Frampton and McGuigan. Uh, which we um, managed to get on in September of 2020. And um, clearly it was fought to a draw because they decided to pull stumps and indicate that they settled the case at one stage. Um, another thing that we've obviously learned from the system is um, that we really need to think hard about modernisation. We need to think about innovative and creative ways of um, dealing with uh, um, uh, work. Um, not everything has to come through these traditional streams of, um, of getting into court, whether it's through the county court or through um, the high court. Um, it, there are all sorts of ideas out there about the way in which we can use um, uh, uh, online um, access and online dispute resolution in order to ensure that we target the cases at an early stage 
and allocate them to the right place. In other words, a kind of triage system as they come in. So the cases that can be sent towards a resolution, possibly by mediation, can be identified at an early stage. Um, the cases that will require um, the uh, full court procedures to be uh, applied to them uh, will also be identified that way. And that should assist in uh, encouraging um, um, these cases to be uh, moved through more quickly for the advantage of the um, parties. Um, we, um, we are doing um, still a, a reasonable amount of work remotely, and I think it's clear that we will continue to do elements of the work that we do remotely. Um, it's extremely advantageous for the practitioners uh, who are able to basically do their work from their desks as they sit. Um, and uh, there's no reason at all why we should be um, adding in cost to the system by making people uh, come down to a court for a review hearing, which can be perfectly adequately done um, via um, the, um, the present system. Um, we have a, I have agreed a vision statement with the uh, Minister and the Court Service in relation to modernisation and also established a judicial digitisation steering group which is led by Mr Justice Horner and Mr Justice Huddleston. Um, and we have been looking through that group um, at developing a strategy for digital courts that will actually identify what we think is necessary uh, in order to um, um, uh, introduce um, uh, a modernisation programme. I mean, this is going to cost money. There's no point in pretending that it isn't, and that means it's going to take time um, because uh, nobody, there's no magic money tree, and nobody is going to be um, uh, offering significant sums of money to make all of this happen. But it does seem to me that it is important that we have a strategic vision, as it were, of where we're going, so that at least when we're making plans about the way in which we do things, whether it's um, modernisation for the PPS or for the PSNI or for um, um, some of those other agencies which are participating in civil work, that we make sure that we're talking to each other and we have a common view uh, about where we're going and how we're going to get there. Um, and I think that will take time. I mean, it's, uh, it is going to require a degree of, of consultation. It is going to require uh, leadership. Um, and I think we need to think, you know, we will need to uh, continue the engagement that we've had with the other areas of the justice system to make sure that that is going to be sensible. And we'll also need to talk um, to the department um, about the financing of that. And I suspect that somebody will be sitting here at some stage in the Justice Committee explaining what the judicial view is about uh, how all of that might be accomplished. Um, I. Uh, we, we have benefited unquestionably from COVID legislation in terms of the way in which we are able to work. Um, uh, the, uh, um, the remote hearings give us um, a, um, a, a more effective way of dealing with certain situations, such as the first remand hearing uh, from uh, the police station where uh, the accused can um, uh, uh, be brought in uh, remotely. Um, it allows for witnesses to give evidence remotely, um, and that uh, is of particular benefit to um, expert witnesses. Um, 
in the criminal field, we wouldn't have been able to do that. But we have been doing expert witnesses in the family field for years. Um, and you know, you, we have hearings which have to start at 8 in the morning because we have to accommodate somebody in Australia or um, uh, perhaps somebody in America where you start in the afternoon rather than the start of the day and sit through. Um, uh, I'm, I'm glad to see that the committal reform bill is making its way through. I think this has the, uh, uh, the opportunity to be a game changer in terms of um, uh, speeding up justice. I think if it's going to work, um, once again, we'll all have to talk to each other. Uh, we need to make sure that the PSNI, the PPS, the courts, the defence solicitors uh, are all, uh, all understand exactly how this happens. Um, we'll need strong case management to ensure that when cases come into the Crown Court, as they will, um, that they're not uh, being uh, reviewed endlessly uh, 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 for periods of years. These cases need to be directed upon at an early stage. People need to engage with them to understand what it is um, they need, and the judge needs to take control of uh, uh, identifying what the issues are, requiring the parties to, co to cooperate in relation to that, and then getting on with um, uh, getting the cases through for um, um, hearing. Um, uh, there have been, I think, some concerns expressed about what the effect will be of taking all the indictable cases over to the Crown Court immediately rather than leaving them uh, in the Magistrates' Court. Um, I think the point is that the Crown Court is where they should be because the Crown Court judges have the expertise and experience of how to manage these cases and therefore will be able to get a grips with preparing them uh, in the way that they require. Um, our present uh, legislative arrangements actually don't give the Magistrates Court the power to do any of that. Um, the only uh, task for the Magistrate is whether or not the case is ready to be sent forward. Um, so the, the magistrate is not involved in working out, you know, do we need experts? Can we agree some of the evidence? Um, uh, um, uh, are the charges right? Should we be thinking about something else? Um, that, that's not uh, what their task is. Um, but I think the magistrate's court has a, has a role to play in terms of the overall criminal justice system um, in that at the moment its general jurisdiction is in or about 12 months in terms of sentencing powers. In some uh, instances, like criminal damage, it is two years. In others, it's uh, six months. But uh, it seems to me that we have, unlike England and Wales, a professional magistracy, um, people who are experienced lawyers, who are well-trained, who uh, will continue to be trained through the Judicial Studies Board. Uh, and uh, I think these people are entirely capable of dealing with cases with um, uh, a greater um, sentencing liability. Um, um, my suggestion has been that any case, uh, the magistrate should be in, uh, entitled to impose um, in respect of any indictable uh, or either way case where it's appropriate sentences of up to five years. Um, now, that doesn't mean that any, anybody would be forced to have their case heard in the magistrate's court because it would be, you would have the either way approach. In other words, there would have to be an election by the accused um, and the accused would be perfectly entitled to elect uh, to go to the Crown Court if that's what the accused wanted to do. But I think you would find that there are a lot of cases, drugs possession cases, possession with intent cases, 
um, where um, there are sentences of less than five years that are appropriate, but they're outside the present range at the moment, and those cases would be knocked out at considerable saving to the PSNI in terms of the time they would take to prepare the file, and similarly uh, considerable um, easing for um, the PPS as well. And I would hope that at some stage, obviously not in this mandate but beyond, uh, that some serious consideration could be given um, to that. Um, I'm also glad to hear that progress seems to be moving in terms of the Justice Bill in connection with the recommendations of Sir John Gillan in his review of serious sexual offences. I mean, John's report came in 2017, which was perhaps not an auspicious time in terms of looking to the uh, Home Legislature to get things done, but um, uh, his report uh, is, a, as, as always, a comprehensive analysis as a result of careful uh, consultation and a discussion with uh, um, the affected parties. And I, I, I think that the um, proposals within the Justice Bill, which uh, are sought to be brought forward, are bound to be um, of considerable support uh, to the victims of sexual offences and will contribute to all of us trying to ensure that we don't have attrition um, in relation to those offences, whatever else happens. And I think, um, I'm, I'm, I, I hope that within this mandate you may be able to achieve um, that outcome, and I think that will be uh, um, very welcome indeed. Um, um, we have uh, uh, taken on board uh, John's recommendations in terms of a practice direction looking at vulnerable witnesses. Um, uh, thanks to the efforts of Her Honour Judge Smith, um, there's, uh, we have a pilot now involving children under the age of 13 uh, who are um, uh, involved in, uh, in cases of sexual uh, abuse or sexual offences. And the objective there is to see if these cases can actually be disposed of within a six-month period. Um, and you know, considerable work has been done by everybody, the PPS and the PSNI, in order to make that happen. It's again the product of joined up working, uh, which um, the judge led, um, and um, the outcome, I think, has been again uh, of great benefit, albeit it's a small number of cases, but it, it points the direction uh, um, that joined up collaborative working can actually um, um, move these things along quite considerably. Um, similarly, in civil and family justice, we have, um, again, uh, major reports from Sir John Gillan. And I've had asked him, as he was coming towards the end of his time at the Court of Appeal, to take this on. Um, uh, uh, as I've explained to some others, way back in the early 1970s, Lord McDermott sat down to do a report in relation to the administration of justice in Northern Ireland, and that led to the Judicature Northern Ireland Act in 1978. And it seems to me that the uh, remarkable work that John has done in terms of civil and family justice should form the bedrock, almost like the um, um, instructions to the drafter, as it were, uh, in relation to an Access to Justice Act, which I hope will come through. Uh, within the next mandate. Um, there's nothing controversial about it. I mean, it's, uh, um, it's, it's, he, he anticipated some of the issues around digitisation that we've had, and if anything, we, we probably would be trying to go a little bit further this time, uh, but um, I'm enormously grateful to him, as indeed are all my colleagues, um, for uh, the work that he has done in uh, bringing those reports through. 
Um, everybody's entitled to have a bee in their bonnet about something or other. And I suppose my bee uh, uh, is um, uh, in re relation to whether or not there should be a non-ministerial department which deals with the way in which judicial support services um, are uh, provided in Northern Ireland. Um, as I'm sure you know, in Scotland and the Republic of Ireland, there are court service boards which are judicially led, which have the functions of looking at the support services that are available to the judges in connection with the work that they do, so that the court clerks, people who um, uh, put the files together, where the information is got, um, where um, uh, the uh, summonses are issued, etc., um, and also for the court estate. Now, uh, this is where I'm probably going to fall out with people, and I hope I don't do that in, in uh, too bad a way. But the, the, the reason actually uh, behind uh, this, at least in part, and I've, I've spoken to both Susan Denham, who was the Irish Chief Justice, and to uh, uh, Brian Gill uh, when he was uh, Chief Justice in Scotland, um, and, and I've also uh, discussed it with Lord Carlaway and... Uh, with Arthur Hamilton, who was the, uh, the Lord President in Scotland when I, I took up my post. Um, the, the, the problem is, you know, we, we, want, we all want to have a court estate um, which provides for members of the public who are coming into it 21st century services and facilities and enables them to see the courts as a, a modern, um, a effective, um, friendly uh, in some cases child-friendly venue uh, for things that need to be carried out, whether in the civil family or uh, criminal side. But I mean, we all know that it's hugely difficult. Uh, it's exactly the same as in health. It's hugely difficult uh, to, um, uh, to implement that because it will mean in some cases um, that uh, uh, courts may have to close or the, or the range of work that they do may have to change. And that there would be investment in, um, in other courts. And that inevitably arouses um, considerable local uh, anxiety. Um, and in fact, it's not just among members of the public. It can arise considerable local anxiety among judges as well, because I remember um, when we eventually got round to closing Larne Court that the district judge made a scathing statement about the, uh, in his last hearing about the fact that this wonderful facility was being removed from the people of Larne. So, I mean, I, I, I understand um, the issues all right. Uh, and, and the net result of this is this, that I mean, if you look at what we've actually managed to uh, deal with over the last uh, number of years, um, we, um, we've lost the Crumlin Road Courthouse, uh, which was a magnificent uh, building. Uh, the reason we had to move out of it was that pieces of plaster were falling on people and we were concerned that people were going to get hurt. Um, we've, uh, um, uh, we've lost Larne. Um, we've lost Bangor, uh, which was another uh, iconic building, but again, the pieces of plaster were uh, um, about to fall off the uh, edge of it, although I noticed that it has now been uh, provided, I think, to um, a, a, a community group who hopefully will make some, um, some uh, good use of it. Um, but we, we, in 2006, I remember well, it was two years after I was appointed as a judge, um, the, uh, the then uh, head of court service, uh, David Lavery, commissioned uh, a, a wonderful um, uh, appraisal of what the court estate should be. 
And I remember myself and the late Brian Kerr and a number of others went down to see this uh, wonderful um, way in which the court services were going to be delivered. And it was it had wonderful pictures in it, and you know it was uh, brilliantly done. And we all went down to look at it, and we all put it away, and we never saw it again. Uh, nobody ever saw it again. So that's 2006. Move on to about 2015-16, um, and you'll remember that there were a number of courthouses which were uh, put on ice, uh, of which the most iconic is probably the Town Hall Street, um, right beside um, the courts, which is still uh, closed at the moment, but waiting there to be revived. Um, uh, we had Balamina closed for a while, but that's reopened again. Um, there was a proposal to uh, close Limavady and Straban, Marafelt, um, and one or two others. But uh, local objection intervened, and oddly enough, uh, what happened was that, uh, that nothing happened uh, in relation to that. And that's exactly what happened in Scotland, and it's exactly what happened in the Republic. That, um, the, if you like, the the the. the the, the political process is not well attuned to this type of reorganisation. So what happened was, in each case, um, they um, sent this off to uh, people who were commissioned to uh, do the job. Uh, they had to do the, all the consulting and come up with the plans and then implement them. And they were subject to judicial review in relation to whether they got it right or whether they got it wrong but it was outside the hands of the politicians in both Scotland and the Republic of Ireland. And it seems to me that the high likelihood is that if we leave things the way they are, in 2026 there will be another glossy produced, but nothing will have changed, um, and the court system will still um, not be appropriate for uh, their uh, users. So that, that's my big ask, um, that serious consideration is given to whether the structures that have worked apparently so well in Scotland um, and the Republic of Ireland, um, which have virtually no differences between them, are relatively small jurisdictions like our own, be given serious consideration by the political classes um, in this jurisdiction. So I hope you haven't been too upset, Mr Chairman, by uh, the, uh, the bee in the bonnet, uh, but nope. I assure you that all the bees are now deceased. <laughs> No, I think, Sir Declan, it is an opportunity for, for you as well to be able to, in this forum, to give your, your commentary, and that commentary, I think, is, uh, is accepted in uh, the way that it is presented, and you have certainly given us uh, food for thought uh, on a number of issues, as opposed to try and tease some of these out, uh, and can I just remind members, if they would either indicate Right, now the hands are all starting to go up now, so I have a screen in front of me here, so <clears throat> I will try and manage this <clears throat> as expeditiously as I can. In terms of this, the, the modernisation piece, and obviously uh, the committal reform bill and post-COVID, so if you take all of those as component parts, do you see there being a challenge, particularly in relation to defence, uh, in how the system, because all the parts of the, the judicial process have to move together. And you, you reminded us of uh, a time when there was the walkout and there was a strike, uh, which created its own challenges. But in terms of trying to get 
to a better place, which is a better place ultimately for those who have to use the judicial process. Uh, do you think that uh, the, the COVID experience and uh, the issue of the, the remote hearings, are those elements that could remain uh, and that that would add to and be complementary in terms of the modernisation that is needed to help in the delivery of justice? Yeah. I mean, I have absolutely no doubt that there are elements of the COVID arrangements, as it were, that will continue in one form or another. Um, the, uh, a lot of the case management work um, that is done, uh, it seems to me, will be capable of being dealt with uh, in uh, a uh, remote way. But it will require legislation in the criminal field. I mean, if, if the COVID regulations were to fall or the, the arrangements under the COVID coronavirus act were to fall, we would not be able to do um, remote hearings in the way that we're able to do them at the moment. So it is important for us, and I think this will be true right through the jurisdictions in the United Kingdom, it is important for us that those regulations remain in place. And I know that my counterpart in London, uh, Ian Burnett, uh, has, has made the same point. So I, I think there's no doubt that that um, is, is uh, going to happen. Um, I think the point about uh, uh, the defence moving along with us is a point well made, but it's again an indication of the fact that um, these things happen because everybody is consulted. And I think the important uh, mm. thing is to ensure that you get um, the defence who, who see what you're trying to do and can understand the benefits of it. So we've seen that happening, for instance, in just pre-COVID. We had set up a range of Crown Court prog uh, progression uh, committees, which involved the judges, the practitioners, um, uh, prosecution and defence. And there was a, a great deal of uh, common uh, um, uh, understanding uh, of uh, what we were going to do um, uh, and compliance uh, in relation to the way in which, um, as, a, as a group, uh, uh, it was felt that things could properly be done. So I don't see uh, the, the, um, uh, any issues surrounding uh, surrounding bringing the defence on board in relation to the way in which we can do this more effectively. It's been done elsewhere, and our lawyers are very good lawyers, but they're, um, they're perfectly uh, um, uh, uh, able and willing, I think, uh, to engage in a, a, an effective justice system. You did mention, and I think that it was, it, it's a valid observation to make in relation to confidence in the judiciary. And, and obviously that is an issue that we have had to deal with across uh, confidence in this, this place where we sit today, confidence in policing, confidence in the judiciary and so on. But, and we cannot uh, make reference to specific cases. Mm -hmm. but obviously there have been in recent days uh, very vocal commentary made about sentencing and the leniency of sentencing. In, the, uh, in terms of that reform piece and, and the work that will be done, uh, the committal reform and, and so on, do you, do you believe, having come to this point in, in your professional career, looking back over those, I think if I'm right, is it 45 years since you first came to the bar? Uh, if I'm right, or Wikipedia is right, uh, <laughs> it was 1976. Yeah. 
do you, do you believe, Sir Declan, that the judiciary does get it when they see the public reaction, and not just in the last few days, but over a period of time, uh, and there have been numerous cases, that uh, given the nature of whatever the, the particular offence is, and in some cases where the offence was particularly harrowing, uh, that giving a lenient sentence that, and I have no statistics for this, but when it may subsequently be appealed, uh, a higher tariff is granted. Has the judiciary moved in that space that uh, gives or could lead to greater confidence that if someone is before the court for a very horrendous, and you take the, take the work of Sir Joe uh, Gellin and his work and, and the, the, the horrendous things that go on, sadly, in society today, people do look for those who are the perpetrators to actually feel the wrath of the law as well as being given the rights that they do in a democracy such as we have. I, I agree that uh, it's important that there's public confidence in the way in which judges sentence uh, offenders. Um, I also uh, I think it is helpful um, that uh, there is a, um, an opportunity uh, to review any sentence that appears to be unduly lenient. And I, I had indicated to the present minister's uh, predecessor um, that uh, um, a review of unduly lenient sentences and, and an expansion of the cases uh, that could be uh, considered in that seemed to me to be something that was perfectly proper and legitimate uh, for the legislature to do if they considered that it was appropriate. We have, on occasion, uh, where uh, it seemed to us appropriate, we have significantly increased um, sentences uh, in uh, um, areas, for instance, um, most recently uh, where um, there had been a campaign of sexual abuse um, of uh, a, uh, a child, um, and uh, where we, we took the view that um, uh, a sentence should be increased by, I think it was somewhere in or about seven or eight years, on top of the sentence that had been imposed. Um, so, um, and, and I think it's, there's no doubt that um, um, stiff sentences are necessary um, in relation to uh, certain types of cases. We have guidelines which talk about, um, uh, for instance, in, in serious offences of violence, about the, um, uh, the importance of recognising terrorist involvement in uh, cases of that sort. And, and for myself, um, I mean, I'm sort of beginning to wonder whether we should change that rubric somewhat uh, and recognise that the same approach is appropriate in relation to organised criminality as distinct from just uh, uh, indicating it as a pure, as it were, terrorism um, um, uh, matter. Um, because um, I think there's increasing evidence of um, uh, uh, organised criminality uh, activity um, which may or may not have, or have originated with those who might have been involved in some way or other with something or other, but, but that there are groups now who independently 
are, in, are organising themselves in uh, a criminal fashion, which it seems to me um, would justify um, uh, virtually the identical approach to the uh, types of uh, cases that we're talking about. Um, so uh, that, that's an area where I think, as a matter of sentencing policy, I could see um, uh, that shift, as it were, to recognition of the importance of uh, examining organised criminality. Thank you. Uh, we're going to go to members, so I will try and do this as fairly as I can on the basis of how I saw hands go up. So, Shanil, uh, we'll go to you first. Thank you. Thank you, Chair, and apologies for missing the earlier se uh, session. And I want to thank and welcome the Lord Chief Justice for being here with us today, um, and also for the very intense and thorough briefing, uh, not just the, here today, but the, the earlier paper, which we caught sight of. Um, I would be eager to know, and you made the point uh, very well, Sir Declan, about the, um, the justice system and the committal reform piece being, being a piece that could speed up justice, I suppose, and putting it in the right place. But I have a niggling concern, and I wonder, could you speak to it, in terms of then um, the volume of work that would move? Do you have any fear that there could be, in, in the stretch or the objective of trying to speed up justice, that there is the potential for achieving best evidence not actually coming come to play? Um, and a second point I'd like to raise with you, and no doubt in your many years, um, as the chair has highlighted, you will have watched uh, many reviews come and go and some being implemented and others uh, disappearing, unfortunately, without enough regard. I would like to know what your, your personal view is in terms of the speed of action that has been happening or not happening around the Gillen recommendations. Uh, well, if I can um, um, just deal with the um, with the last point first. Um, I mean, I, I I'm disappointed that we haven't been able to implement Gillen all the aspects of Gillen uh, as quickly uh, as we could. Um, but my focus, I have to say, is more on getting those recommendations that remain outstanding done, rather than looking back uh, to. Um, uh, re-examine and try to apportion uh, any kind of fault or blame in relation to the things um, that, um, that uh, haven't happened. Um, turning to the first part of the question, Sinead, if I may, um, uh, I don't think that uh, um, the uh, uh, committal reform should impact adversely uh, in the way that you described. I think there's, uh, um, and, and it was identified and, and recognised by John in uh, his reports, uh, I think the facilities that we offer um, for those who are um, um, victims, children, um, uh, those who have been subject to um, sexual offences, um, needed the review that John uh, um, um, provided. Um, and I think that... Um, uh, we're moving towards a place now where achieving best evidence um, uh, is uh, a feature which is going to move independently uh, and will involve, I think, uh, within a relatively short time, uh, the preparation of uh, cross-examination as well um, at the more or less 
at the time in which the offence is being committed. In other words, in circumstances where the victim can actually remember uh, clearly uh, what has happened rather than leaving it uh, until some trial that might be you know, nine months, 12 months, 18 months down um, the road. So I think that um, uh, uh, that presents its own challenges quite independently of committal reform. It means that both the PSNI and the PPS uh, will have to work hard at questions of disclosure because you don't want a situation to arise where you have um, an early cross-examination of a victim and then somebody turns up with a raft of disclosure documents and says, oh dear, I didn't get a chance to cross-examine in relation to those. Now, I did see um, the uh, Lord Chancellor, uh, Robert Buckland, uh, indicated uh, last week that there was some mechanism now whereby phones uh, could be um, uh, held by police for less than 24 hours and uh, the material in relation to them uh, would be downloaded in some way uh, within that period and the phone returned. And I would hope that that is an indicator um, that particularly uh, for that type of evidence which has become so prevalent in these types of cases um, that two things will happen. One, that the phones will be uh, triaged quickly but secondly, that the disclosure process recognises that there is privacy associated with items on the phone and it doesn't mean that you just send the whole lot, as it were, a person's entire private life um, off to uh, the judicial system because they have been a victim. I mean, that would be, I think, the most extraordinary outcome if somebody found that all of their uh, uh, privacy was invaded because they had been a victim, because in a sense that is re-victimising um, that person. So uh, it seems to me that, um, that that independent work, no matter which way you look at it, whether you're committal reform or not, that's something that we really have to make sure happens. And, and I'm hoping that committal reform will be a factor in encouraging that to happen. Thank you. So, Declan, uh, Chair, if I just may make one more point. I, I absolutely agree, and I think a lot of the um, legislation that's coming in front of us, it's increasingly the case where we're looking at the online world and technology, and I know the PSNI had um, made known to us the difficulties in terms of the resourcing for triage, and no doubt that, that will improve, albeit that it's slightly behind the technology itself. Um, being, being used. Um, but if I could just take the opportunity uh, to thank you and to wish you well and to let you know that I, I did hear the bee in your bonnet and, and that, that was a question I'd intended to put to you. If there was something that um, in, in your service that you particularly felt needed to be aired today and I appreciate that you've done that. So thank you. Thank you, Chair. Thank you. Thank you, Sinead. Uh, Robin. Uh, thank you, Chair, and uh, can I uh, join with you in your thanks to, to Sir Declan uh, and indeed to wish him well, uh, as Sinead has done, uh, for the future. Also, thank you for the uh, written information, but indeed your wide-ranging uh, remarks at the beginning. And I do think it's important that we all should have a bee in our bonnet about something uh, I think that's that's an important part of life. I wonder, Sir Declan, you'd used a number of words, um, modernization, innovation, strategic vision, uh, and, and so on. Um, and a, a very modern case uh, that, that uh, 
came up in Northern Ireland uh, and indeed uh, made, well certainly across the Western world, uh, made, made world headlines. Uh, and that was the case of the Asher's Bakery. And, and I suspect that uh, as, as our society moves, that there will be future cases of, of, of a similar nature. But indeed, for the, the, for the cost of a cake, which uh, you know, was probably around 30 or 35 pounds, um, a high-profile uh, case went through the courts uh, of Northern Ireland. Um, and, and at each stage, the young couple who owned the business, um, obviously under stress, not only personal stress themselves, but indeed stress uh, for the potential future of, of, of their business, ended up costing, um, you know, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of pounds uh, in legal fees on both sides uh, uh, for, for the Equality Commission. Um, if I remember right, something like 250,000 and certainly something like uh, a couple of hundred thousand for, for the uh, Asher's folk in, in, in legal fees. And yet when it went to the Supreme Court and Supreme Court uh, sitting in Belfast, there was a unanimous decision uh, in, in favour of, of Asher's. I do think we, we are likely to face future cases of, of this nature. Could you, would you comment on, on the, the, that case uh, in particular? Well, I'm, I'm not going to comment on the case, but I'm going to comment on the principle. Um, you're quite right, right that, okay. that, fair, that, fair point. that litigation is can be extremely expensive. And in fact, it can be so expensive sometime that there is a risk that uh, people may not be able to uh, afford uh, to justify um, uh, and sustain their rights. And I think that is a real concern for any system. If you've reached the stage where um, uh, people who have rights find that they are um, unable um, to do so other than at the peril uh, of um, enormous uh, financial uh, cost, uh, which, which either they can't afford or which would be catastrophic in terms of them and their family. So that is a, a concern. And I'm not sure what the answer to it is. I mean, I know that um, uh, to some extent in cases of this sort um, that uh, there's now a, um, a bigger emphasis on uh, things like crowdfunding, uh, which uh, can actually manage to generate um, um, support from the wider community where uh, you have a, um, a, um, a, a, a right of that sort in relation to um, uh, personal freedom and uh, religious belief uh, uh, coming into play. Um, and uh, I, I, it may be that we need to think about a more organised way uh, of dealing with that so that people who are facing this sort of case that goes uh, to the Supreme Court are in a position to um, um, to deal with it. Um, and, and I think as well as that, that it, it probably uh, in this area, um, we've had more cases uh, going to the Supreme Court 
you know, the touch in this type of territory. For instance, there was the uh, case involving the um, the owners of the boarding house who uh, um, were faced with a, a uh, same-sex couple who were seeking to avail of their uh, facilities, and that ended up in the Supreme Court as well. And to some extent, you know, the Supreme Court is there to give us clarity as to where the line is to be drawn uh, as to what is protected uh, within the context of the legislation, i.e. the Human Rights Act, and uh, uh, how uh, uh, any um, challenges as between, as, uh, uh, apparent challenges as between uh, the rights of different people um, are to be uh, resolved in terms of whether uh, one or other is discriminating um, against the other. Um, I think that uh, one of the things that I would say about that is that um, the, 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 the court, I think, uh, it helps if the court is clear uh, about what the position is. Um, in other words, any ambiguity that is left uh, in relation to this is simply an invitation for these matters to, uh, to be raised again um, as issues. Um, if we take uh, the, the, this issue of the cake, um, uh, there was actually uh, quite a body of American jurisprudence. Um, some of it went one way and some of it went the other way. Um, and uh, I mean, that would be a very unsatisfactory situation in which to, um, to find oneself. Um, there were differences of view about uh, what you had to establish for discrimination, whether or not um, uh, discrimination in, uh, uh, in terms of effect as distinct from uh, um, in terms of um, action um, was uh, um, capable of being um, um, sustained. And there was uh, certainly some European Union authority um, which uh, uh, pointed in that direction. But I, I agree with the general point that, first of all, it is important, um, particularly in sensitive matters of this kind within this jurisdiction, that there is a methodology um, of those who are affected by this um, having uh, a means of vindication which should cause them the least stress possible uh, in terms of uh, their lives and their families. Uh, and I don't think that was achieved in the Asher's case because the strain uh, on that family uh, must have been extremely difficult indeed. Um, and uh, I certainly would want to do anything that I could to ensure that you know, where, where there's a similar situation of um, establishing rights, that we try to manage that in a way which it causes the least stress and least hurt um, to those who are involved. Uh, th thank you, Sir Declan. I, I, I have no doubt that there are going to be other cases of, of uh, a similar nature uh, as we move along in society. And the, the point I think about um, Ashers were in the. Uh, I, I suspect that the Ashers family must at times have been saying, "We just settle here," um, and they were fortunate that they had uh, Christian Institute who came in to provide them uh, with support. But there must be many, many cases where uh, the money is is not available. Uh, and, and folk do decide, uh, I just can't afford it, so I take it on the chin 
uh, and, and move on, even though I feel strongly uh, that all the, all the uh, steps I took were, were honourable steps. Okay. Any, any other questions, Robin? Thank you. No, okay, thank no, you. No, thank you, Chair. Thank you. Uh, Linda, Vice Chair. Thank you, Chair. Can you hear me okay? Yes. Thank you, and thank you to the Justice for coming to the committee today and I'd like to echo the Chair's comments in terms of um, thanking you for, for all the work you have done and obviously wishing you the, the very best in, in the future and I hope you have um, a long and happy retirement and get to, to enjoy it. Here, here. Um, <laughs> and again, thank you for coming to the committee today. I'm sure, hopefully, I would like to think that your um, successor will, will, will do likewise and I've no, do no doubt probably will follow in your footsteps and, and will hopefully get to, to meet with um, Justice Kagan, or the Lord Chief Justice Kagan, as she will be then, um, or the Chief Justice, as whenever she takes up her role. But just, I, I have some questions of my own, but I just want to pick up on what you talked about in relation to the court estate, um, and I suppose that reluctance to, to, to give up buildings, and it's something that we face in relation to, to hospitals and many other um, types of that nervousness around losing a, a particular building in, in, a, in a particular area. And I'm probably conscious that people are, and, and I think health has, is probably going to lead on this and it may have a knock-on effect, and that will be, for me, a positive thing. Um, but people are coming more to the realisation that what matters is services and meeting the needs of the people who require those services. So the people who have to use um, the court for whatever reason, um, I suppose I could share a slight interest in that I've had to use it, but for, for tribunals and, and, and supporting people and, and representing people in tribunals, and a lot more of those now happen and they happen in Dungannon Court here locally and I mean we're lucky in that, in that Dungannon is, is a fairly modern um, courthouse but obviously there are other courthouses which aren't and many people I'm thinking specifically of, of the victims and survivors of HIA and during the heart inquiry they were taken to a courthouse which a number of them have related to me that it felt like they were back in another institution because that's what that building reminded them of. So I, I do think we have to have buildings and um, you know what we provide needs to meet the needs of, of those who we serve. So I do think that it is a conversation that we have to have and be honest about and, and not um, you know politic around these issues. I think it's important that we do look at what exactly do we have to do to meet the needs of those that we serve. So um, it, it, it's a bugbear of yours, but I'm certainly a, a, an open ear on the issue, and, and, and I believe that others will too. Thank you. That's just a, a comment on that issue. Can I just ask you an analysis of the PPS last week? Chair, I'm just going to say the bad feedback. I don't know whether maybe others aren't muted, so if there's maybe a way of 
Yeah, we're okay. We can still hear Ramadan you. Still okay. Go ahead. Okay. So I asked this of the, the PPS last week, but in relation to the proposed legislation that the British government um, are talking about bringing forward around the statute of limitations for state forces, have the NIO had any engagement with your office? Because obviously there will be implications for the judicial system and for justice as a whole. So I'm just wondering, have they had any engagement with your staff? None other than that, when they publish uh, various uh, suggestions or have been over the last number of months, anything that they published has generally come through to my office. But uh, I haven't had any uh, um, discussions. I have had uh, discussions with the uh, permanent secretary um, about uh, um, uh, judicial security, um, and I have had uh, discussions about um, with both the permanent secretary and with the Irish secretariat in Belfast. Uh, in relation to um, the general, the general, as it were, scheme of uh, uh, how legacy should be addressed, I was asked by both to speak to them, and uh, I was happy to do that. Um, but I haven't had any discussions beyond that. No. Okay. Thank you. I appreciate that. And um, you, you talked earlier just in relation to the Gillen review. And, and I may be premature in asking that question because I know that the, this pilot scheme has only been launched three months, but the, the free legal advice um, for victims of sexual offences, I'm just wondering, are there any early indications on how the scheme is operating? And, and I acknowledge that it's very young, and if, if there aren't any indications really at this time, I, I totally understand. Yeah, no, I don't think, Linda, that uh, certainly uh, there's been nothing fed back to me yet about exactly how... Um, that's working. Okay, I mean, I agree yeah. with you that it is early days, and I would expect, you know, by um, September, October, that we should be beginning to see something. Okay, I appreciate that. Thank you. And I'm just wondering, then, can you give an update on the work to implement the recommendations in relation to tackling the jury rape myths? Um, well, I mean, I think that we have had. Uh, um, Shortly after John's report, uh, back in 2018, I think it was, we uh, put together a number of JS, Judicial Studies Board training sessions um, in order to deal with this. Now, as you'll know, there's actually quite a debate going on at the moment about this. Um, uh, Cheryl Thomas, who Professor Cheryl Thomas uh, from UCL, uh, is the person who has been carrying out uh, this jury work now for a number of years. And in her uh, latest writings, she has broadly come to the view that the notion of jury myths uh, is itself a myth um, and uh, uh, maintains that, uh, in fact, jurors uh, uh, um, uh, don't make decisions on the basis uh, of uh, a misunderstanding of what consent means and, uh, um, uh, and, and other um, similar matters about uh, uh, ways in which uh, victims are disadvantaged. Um, uh, but uh, in our case, I mean, we have uh, um, uh, continued to emphasise the need to uh, make clear uh, to jurors exactly what consent does mean in these types of cases. 
um, to deal with any issues um, that, uh, that that may arise and prevent any evidence, uh, you know, which is purely prejudicial and has no relative, uh, no relevant value, being introduced into um, um, cases. Um, and I think, uh, although Cheryl uh, may be of a firm view that jury myths are not uh, are are in fact a myth, I think we will continue to give directions which are based uh, on the proposition that they might be, and therefore uh, our directions to the jury should ensure um, that there is clarity about exactly how they should go about their task. I appreciate that. Thank you. Um, and, and I think that probably we, we talked in the earlier presentation around child sexual exploitation that a, a discourse around the issues and, and a positive discourse in, in, a, you know, in, in a good and meaningful way would be a good thing and I, th I think that that is no different in relation to this issue that uh, a positive discourse and and just you know have making people understand that somebody's reputation or what they were or don't were um is irrelevant whenever it comes to the issue of consent so i, I think that it's important for for the rest of society to have a, a positive and good discourse around it as well um just we have um judge marnon coming to us Next week, I think. No, two weeks. Yeah, uh, the time slipping by that quickly. I'm not sure when, but just the the recommended recommendation around introducing new protected characteristic groups, including age, gender, and gender identity, including transgender. Do you have a view on that, Mr. Dakin? Well, I mean, the introduction of that is a legislative policy matter for um, the legislature. Um, uh, I know that there there is a practical uh, element in relation to these cases, and I think it probably involves more culture than anything else, because um, I know I mean it has always been the case uh, that certain types of uh, offence motivated in a, in a particular way um, have by statute uh, um, uh, been identified as aggravating factors, which should, should lead to. A, a stiffer sentence, um, but there's also evidence that in a lot of cases, although people might plead guilty to the assault, that they will not plead guilty to the assault with the aggravating factor, um, and that uh, a lot of victims uh, and prosecutors, uh, therefore, as a result of that, a lot of victims were unwilling uh, to see the case contested, and prosecutors um, uh, were unable to um, pursue that matter through. Now, I think th there will have to be a culture change so that uh, we make sure um, that uh, um, these cases uh, are um, um, that victims are supported um, to ensure that they will take these cases through to ensure that this law can be effective in delivering what it's intended to deliver. Thank you. And um, just finally, Chair, and thank you for your um, patience with me. Just to go back to the, the legacy one, and this is asking an, an opinion, I suppose, more than anything factual. But would it be fair to say that if the British government do bring forward the proposed statute of limitations, then ongoing prosecutions will fall? I have absolutely no idea. Um, I would need to see the terms of anything that was brought forward. 
Okay, and I suppose we're all in the same position yeah. on that. None yeah. of us have actually seen anything. Um, but I appreciate your answers to the, the questions. And as I said at the start, I wish you all the best in the future. And thank you very much for coming to the committee today. Thank you very much, Linda. Rachel. Thank you, Chair, and um, thank you very much, uh, Sir Declan, for your great introductory remarks and also um, for expressing your opinions. We all have many beans in our bonnets, I would say, um, and I was listening as well, so look forward to working on that in the future. I too wish you a long and happy retirement. I'm sure you're looking forward to it. Um, I had a question just about uh, rape myths, but Linda has already covered that. So just with regard to the Gillen review, and then I have a couple of questions on the domestic abuse, if that's okay. So just about my one on Gillen, it was chapter 14 of Gillen, which was concerning the voice of the child. Um, and there were several recommendations for the judiciary to consider in terms of case management. Um, and that was 189 and 190, and it was about child complainants um, and offering an obligatory case management hearing and also ground rules hearings to be introduced in all involving child complainants or vulnerable adults. So would you have any information or an update on the work to implement those recommendations? Well, I know that that work has been taken forward uh, within the uh, family division. Um, uh, I'm not across the detail of exactly uh, um, uh, what the most recent numbers are in terms of statistics of the cases in which um, that has occurred, but I am clear about the fact that within the Shadow Family, Ju Family Justice Board, um, that that work um, has been taken forward, and I'll certainly ensure that it's uh, forwarded through to you um, after this hearing, so that uh, I can I can give you a full answer. Thank you very much. I'm appreciated. Sorry to put you on the spot. <laughs> no, that's all right. Um, and I'll move on then, just to domestic abuse. There's a lot um, that I would like to ask you about this, and I'll try and be as succinct as possible. But um, the I, I, we, we always discuss as, as part of the domestic abuse and civil proceedings um, act in the committee deliberations about um, training and about awareness, of course, control and about um, across the justice system, and that included all criminal justice partners and about um, you know judiciary. We heard loud and clear from a lot of uh, representatives from organisations um, and about issues with child contact orders and about how the perception of the courts um, were on the ground. So um, in terms of um, training, has there been any training or other work um, within the judiciary um, in terms of, of domestic abuse, say myths on domestic abuse um, or any, any on child contact orders in the case of domestic abuse and courts of control? Yeah, I mean, th this is an issue which has been troublesome uh, from our point of view for really quite some time. Um, I know that I went down to the Foyle Women's Aid Centre with uh, um, um, the, uh, David Ford when he was Justice Minister, uh, um, and we met Mary Brown and others who were involved um, with that project. Um, and we had a long discussion about uh, what, what would work in terms of um, uh, you know the the, the general, polit if you like, strategic uh, approaches to uh, how one should deal with this. Um, in an awful lot of cases, um, the person abused would really quite like to get back uh, the person with whom they initially formed the relationship, um, because um, that person was a person whom they loved, 
um, and uh, um, th there, therefore, uh, and, and I think this was supported by, by Mary and others, um, that um, finding ways of getting perpetrators uh, uh, engaged with what they'd done and understanding it and uh, um, uh, seeing whether or not, um, uh, depending on the circumstances obviously, but whether or not um, uh, it was uh, possible to achieve an outcome um, uh, became somewhat controversial because there has to be an element of uh, stick, but there also has to be an element of carrot um, in order to make this happen. Now, what happened was that uh, uh, eventually in discussions with the PSNI, the deal was um, that uh, uh, the perpetrator had to accept criminal liability and only then would the perpetrator uh, have the opportunity to engage in a perpetrator's course. And we're not talking about, this is in uh, domestic abuse, certain domestic abuse cases, not all. I mean, there were cases that were simply far too serious where none of this would arise. Um, and, I mean, broadly what happened was that those who were before the court were advised um, that they should plead not guilty, and the high likelihood was that the case wouldn't be proceeded with against them, and that's what happened. Um, and that pilot didn't turn out to be successful. So what we did um, was, with the money that we secured for that pilot, we then transferred it by agreement over to the family law system because in family law there, the, the same problem arises. Uh, it hasn't reached the uh, criminal justice stage, but it's there as an issue within the family. And they had had much more success in getting uh, perpetrators to engage in uh, um, perpetrators' programmes. Um, and we then transferred uh, that money over to um, uh, the family side in order to increase the number of people um, who could be uh, uh, dealt with in perpetrators' programmes there. So that's, that's stage one, as it were, and we can put that to one side. Um, the second element has been the, um, uh, the programme which is, was run as a pilot by um, uh, District Judge McElhome, Barney McElhome in Derry. Um, and, uh, uh, it was his work that actually demonstrated the problems with the existing uh, domestic abuse court um, and also, I think, focused on what you need to do in order to make a court of this sort work. So you needed to have special sitting, it needed to be regular, um, you needed to have a range of supports available, uh, both from um, uh, those provided uh, by... Um, uh, uh, agencies such as social workers and others, but also the support that you would get from um, organisations such as Foiled Women's Aid, who were able um, to provide emotional and other practical support um, to victims who were in um, this sort of situation. Um, and as a result of that, um, when uh, the proposal came forward to lead something uh, in Belfast Magistrates Court, uh, the presiding district judge uh, Judge Bagnell uh, prepared a paper on a specialist domestic violence court uh, for um, the department. Um, and the point that she made was that there were things that everybody would have to put together. So um, uh, it would involve, for instance, the police would need to provide PPS with high quality uh, body-worn footage 
which could be capable of it being admitted uh, in evidence. A priority needed to be given to files um, so that they could be generated through as promptly as possible uh, with the uh, PPS together with the evidential uh, materials. And that would require a discussion between PPS and PSNI about that priority. Um, that um, the evidence should be served at an early stage um, and uh, uh, judgments made about ensuring that special measures were available for the victims um, uh, so that you had a different point of entry into the court building. Um, the, the victim felt secure, was protected from any form of intimidation. Um, that in cases where uh, these cases can arise in any circumstance, of course, so they can suddenly turn up um, in any court on any day. Um, and the point is that they would then be referred immediately to the next domestic violence court, which would be that week. You know, you'd be within uh, uh, a week. And the important thing there was that that's where all the supports would be um, to provide the support uh, for uh, the, um, um, the, the victim. Um, uh, and uh, the same judge uh, who uh, sat in the review court would then actually deal with the uh, hearing uh, of the uh, offence itself, that the prosecutors would need to be trained um, so that only trained prosecutors would deal with uh, domestic violence cases, and that consultation with the complainant or the victim would take place before the court hearing, not just on the day, but uh, before that, uh, in order to ensure that uh, um, everything was uh, in place. And now, that, this was um, uh, uh, just around uh, the time of uh, the pandemic coming into play. Um, uh, we also looked at the possibility of a crash facility as well within the court to facilitate um, those who were involved. Um, and, of course, uh, remote evidence centres are, are another aspect of what we've been looking at. So, um, I mean, this was a judicially-led uh, um, uh, approach uh, as to how we could start to deal with this problem and actually build on the work that Barney McElhome had done uh, in the North West and see if we could translate it into uh, that uh, bigger area uh, in Belfast. And I don't believe that that has yet been put in place. November night or November, they hope to start that process. No, uh, Mandy has helpfully told me that in November um, they hope to start that. But I mean, this is a very important piece of work. It shows that you need to have everybody joined up. Um, you need to ensure that the personnel are in place. You need to ensure that the arrangements are understood uh, by all of the actors in order to ensure that we provide for these victims the support that we need to provide. Thank you very much, Jack. That was a very full answer, and thank you very much for the clarification on the date. I had a question down about what your uh, thoughts around introducing a constant dedicated specialist domestic abuse court, but I don't need to ask you that anything more because um, you can with that. So uh, thank you very much. Um, I, my last question, Chair, um, is just sort of re returning on the theme of sort of culture and myths in, within the courts. Uh, it's regarding to domestic abuse, and just in. It's in relation. You might not be able to answer specific questions, and I absolutely appreciate that. But I had been contacted by a professional who works with um, with survivors of domestic abuse, and, and the myths around domestic abuse um, are evident um, to, to them in some of our courts. And I give you an example, and it was a complaint that had been brought to my attention, and the survivor of domestic abuse 
in applying for a non-mall was criticised um, by um, a judge, among other things, for not reporting incidents to police, um, not leaving their home to protect themselves, and for being victimised when, um, as she was a highly educated person. Um, now this this person was applying for a protection order against her abuser, and according to what I've been told. Um, the court considered the possibility of not providing that protection because the judge was unsure as to whether the applicant would actually call the police um, if and when the perpetrator would maybe breach the order. But if, so just to my actual question, um, in a very long-winded way, I appreciate that. When somebody complains about the conduct of a, a, a member of the judiciary or a judge, how is that taken forward within your office, if it is, and what actions could be taken on behalf of that uh, that victim. Well, we have a complaints policy which deals with uh, things that judges do, um, which are outside the hearing of the case. Um, if it's to do with the hearing of the case, then the procedure is to use the appeal process. Um, I mean, certainly the scenario that you have described is one um, that I uh, would be very disappointed by, because it doesn't sound to me as though it even begins to recognise the position of um, the, um, uh, the victim. Thank you, Sir Declan, and I wish you all the best. I really appreciate your answers and your time today. Thank, thank you, you, Chair. Thank you. Thank you, Chair. Thank you, Sir Declan. Um, as with others, I thank you for being here and wish you all the best in terms of your retirement. I was reflecting, um, as you were making your opening remarks, I suddenly realised that uh, I've reached the depressing stage in life where not only uh, having gone past the stage where all sports people are generally speaking younger than me <laughs> and uh, frequently come across school principals who are younger than me, I'm, we're now steadily reaching to the position where the new Lord Chief Justice is younger than me, <laughs> which is, is not a happy time to reach in life in terms of, in terms of age. Um, so that, I suppose just want to probe um, perhaps... Uh, two or three areas, just uh, I suppose following up, and uh, I, I may well ask you your opinion on a couple of things, which I know at that point the the, the beads of sweat suddenly start going down any witnesses, um, <laughs> particularly uh, a judge's uh, um, back at that point. Uh, you made some, I think, some very pertinent points um, early on when you were talking about modernisation, and I think part of the issue, I suppose, is first of all, and I welcome particularly, for instance, the. Um, the tasking of John Gillan, if you like, uh, following in the footsteps of Lord McDermott, of, was only about 45 years ago, roughly. Uh, and I suppose one of the things when looking at, at modernisation, and also I think it's important in terms of the vision statement that's been outlined, and indeed the changes that are there in terms of the committal proceedings. And it, it strikes me while obviously we need to ensure the protections are there, you know, the concepts um, of for example, simply bringing prisoners on remand this long distance sometimes for a mention in court for a few seconds and then being wheeled away by the, the, the police in, in handcuffs um, seems to be sort of clearly sort of um, outdated in terms of modern technology. But I suppose part of the issue is also to ensure that, that uh, where what is put down doesn't simply become something in a glossy brochure, maybe to draw the, the analogy. And I was very struck, which I think something I think maybe the committee may, um, I think, seek to follow up as well, um, from what you said earlier in terms of the, the COVID regulations, that uh, there will be a natural, I think, rush, well, rush is maybe the wrong word, but 
to the natural inclination to see where there's been restrictions that have been placed to simply roll back the restrictions, remove them. And I suppose in doing that, I think one of the things that we need to be conscious of, and particularly within the judicial system, um, is that in following that very natural desire that, that, that we don't take what are virtuous changes that have arisen as a result of that and simply roll back. So I think, I think we will need to engage with the minister and I suppose indirectly there via the executive that if there's a broader rollback of COVID restrictions, that where there are advantages to some changes, that we need to make sure those are, are captured. But what about the first question then? Really, is you know, it's fairly clear that in terms of some of the remote work that will be there, uh, that has arisen from from COVID, and again, it strikes me that it would be a bit of a nonsense if simply we repealed various things to then seek very quickly to reintroduce them. Obviously, people have highlighted the the advantages of the remote working that has happened through COVID. I just wonder if there are any other areas where you feel that there have been advantages to the system, uh, maybe not even ones that were initially contemplated, arising out of the restrictions, which you feel would be very valuable to retain in the immediacy uh, of a uh, sort of as we gradually move out of, of, out of COVID lockdowns. I mean, I think the, as I said at the start, um, the, the the biggest cultural change in a way that has happened is. I think, in a way, is the extent to which all the elements of the justice system have recognised that they need to work together. Um, and I think, as a result of that, that we have a much, much better understanding of what our strengths and weaknesses are in the sense of what we can do and what we can't. Um, I mean, to make things happen within the justice system, um, you know, if it's criminal justice, you have to have the PPS have to have the resources to do what it is you want them to do, as do the PSNI. The defence um, have to have the materials that they need in order to make sure that it happens. And I think that um, um, the way in which um, that we have attempted to engage with each other um, um, through this COVID period has been eye-opening in terms of understanding that you can't just say, I want X. Uh, and then not think about how is that other person going to be able to, or that other organisation, how are they going to be able to do it? So, Declan, I suppose um, you've clearly recognised that. Do you think that has been a lesson that has largely speaking gone across the system, or is there a danger as we move? Uh, the, the danger, obviously, is, as people sort of talk about, returning to normal, yeah. that we don't bank the, the gains where they are. And is there a danger of people sort of backsliding, if we can put it that way, into a little bit more of a silo mentality? I mean, I can't imagine that people would, uh, um, that that would happen if, because it has become so apparent that there are um, um, you know, positives to be taken out of that. And part of the positives are that instead of, you know, not talking to each other and then finger pointing and blaming somebody for not producing something or other, um, you, you, you don't you sit back and you look at, well, what do we have to do to make this work? Um, and do we have to give some priority to somebody else rather than um, us in order to do it? And I think the advantages of that have become so apparent to everybody involved in the system that I, I, would, I would be astonished um, if, uh, if the system uh, allowed that to happen. second issue maybe I want to probe, it, it, it's again something, times have been highlighted in Northern Ireland, it's a much wider debate. Um, particularly across general Western democracies, is the, I suppose, the issues around separations of powers between judiciary, 
between legislature and executive. Yeah. And at different times, the accusations, again, depending upon people's perspective, has either been that, that either legislature or executive had tried to infringe upon judicial independence. On the flip side of the coin, um, those coming from a either legislative or executive position have seen what they would see as a certain level of judicial overreach and um, a level of um, you know, a feeling that, that if you like, that, that, that their powers are trying to be circumscribed when they are effectively they're representing people in that way. But I just maybe want to give you the opportunity, if you want to maybe comment on where you see the balance with that and where, where you see the, the debate developing. Well, I, I, I suppose, um, probably not answering the question directly, but I think one of the... Uh, you want to swap seats, too? <laughs> <laughs> um, I think one of the things that I'm conscious of is that um, if you look at, um, I mean, let's take a controversial case like, like uh, Nicholson, uh, was the right to die case, um, which involved a lot of very sensitive, um, uh, obviously very sensitive issues. Um, one of the things that was clear, and I'm looking at this now as a lawyer rather than, you know, um, you know the rights and wrongs of the position in relation to that, that unfortunate man, um, but. Um, what the court said in that case was really quite important in terms of um, what the uh, Human Rights Act appears to mean. Um, and what the court said was that, yes, the issue as to whether um, um, there should or should not be uh, um, a, uh, um, a, a right to be able to have assistance in order to commit suicide. In order, to, in order to kill yourself, uh, was a matter for the legislature in the Suicide Act, um, which which made it illegal uh, to do that. Was a matter for the legislature, but as the court put it, um, this was an area where um, Article Eight rights—that's rights to private life—was um, uh, uh, involved, um, and that it said that there was a shared competence on the part of the court in that area as well. So the court asserted that the effect of the convention was that in this political area, each had competence. And the court's competence wasn't the same, of course, as the competence of the legislature, because the legislature could actually do something. They could change the law. The court couldn't do that. The court could declare the law incompatible, um, but um, uh, uh, wasn't, uh, wasn't able to change the law. Now, the $64,000 question is why were the views of the nine judges more important than the views of nine other citizens? In other words, why should the judges um, uh, uh, have uh, a, a competence to declare that law um, uh, um, um, incompatible with, with human rights um, and therefore something that, that uh, if you like, should be changed um, in order to comply with human rights. Um, uh, in a, a sensitive issue of that nature, um, uh, uh, is that the kind of territory that the courts should be in? I think that's a difficult question. And I think the courts have struggled with it, because if you look at a whole range of cases that, uh, um, that have come even from this jurisdiction, um, in the human rights, uh, Northern Ireland Human Rights Commission's uh, appeal to the Supreme Court in relation to 
um, uh, reproductive rights. Four of the judges said this is not for us, uh, including the present president of the Supreme Court. Um, similarly, in Nicholson, uh, two of the judges said this isn't for us. Um, so, I mean, this debate is not settled. Um, uh, it's clear that there are differing views on where the competences lie. Um, my predecessor was quite clear about where he was in all of this, um, and I don't think he thought that anything was outside the competence of the Supreme Court, and that's a view that was shared by some others as well. Um, um, uh, for my own part, I don't think you can now take a confident view of um, where um, these matters are going to go. I mean, I, th I think the um, President of the Supreme Court, in his submission to Lord Fox's review, um, made clear that he recognised that there was a, um, um, uh, a, a need for the judiciary to recognise uh, legislative competence um, and uh, uh, to be careful not to step over the line uh, in relation to that. What that actually means, I'm not entirely sure. Uh, maybe finally, I suppose, to put you on the spot and appreciate that uh, there may be certain things you'll want to say privately. But as you move towards uh, retirement, I know maybe, shall we say, uh, uh, probably the buzzwords these days now, so there's a new phase in your life rather than necessarily yep. retirement. Yep. What advice would you give to your successor? Um, I, I think the, um, the principal thing I, I would say is to, um, um, that, that judges need to engage um, the, there are many elements of the community out there, including this committee, um, who uh, have much to say about and much interest in the way in which the judicial system works. Um, I think that you know, 20, 25 years ago, uh, judges would have hidden uh, and been isolated uh, and uh, would not have engaged. I think those days are way over. Um, and I think that engagement both in this environment um, but also with all of those other elements of the justice system and the, the wider community out there uh, are now critical. Judges need to play their part in letting people see that this is a justice system in which they can have confidence. I mean, from that perspective, and I know this goes wider than simply judiciary, is there a danger of people becoming a little bit cocooned? Cocooned in well, in the sense, that, look, I, 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 I was struck many years ago being at an event where myself and another representative were at, and we went, um, not name the, the event or the few events. Um, both of us happened to be at one particular event and were then at another event of a particularly very different social environment, um, say, roughly speaking, within about 10 miles of that, it was within the same constituency. And it did strike me that, and this again goes well beyond, as I said, the judicial side of things, but that apart from the two of us that were at that, the people in one event would never really come into the world of the other group of people. And I think, I suppose it's maybe a, a kind of specifically towards judges, but maybe more generally towards a lot of us in society as to whether we reach a point where we all are in a danger at times of moving in a certain level of bubble. Yeah. And we therefore draw conclusions from that as to what is happening within the world, but that is maybe a very cosseted view of it, of, from whatever direction. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I mean, I, um, one of the things that um, I sought to do was to try to reach out to engage with 
uh, all of the communities within Northern Ireland, and I think that's something um, that you know we, we uh, continue to need to do. Um, I, uh, I sometimes it's difficult to persuade people that they should have you along. Uh, um, 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 I mean, I was uh, grateful for was a little time ago now um, that I managed to. Uh, get invited to an event at the Skynos Centre in, in East Belfast, um, uh, which was a, an opportunity that I was grateful to have uh, in relation to meeting um, uh, ordinary members of the community in that environment. Um, and I think, you know, I think your point is well made in that, you know, there is a danger um, that uh, um, that that everybody involved in the justice system is seen as a bit disconnected from the realities of life uh, for um, the ordinary members of the community. I mean, we need to be conscious of that uh, and to do what we can to um, ensure that people can see that our feet are firmly on the ground. Thank you, Chair. Thank you, Peter. And we have Gemma. Thank you, Chair, and thank you to Sir Declan. It's lovely to know. I just have one question. Everything else has been covered. And sorry, my camera was off there. Um, yeah, so just my one question is, what engagement have you had with the Westminster Review of Judicial Reviews? And what is your view of their proposal, proposed Judicial Review Bill? I think I can probably deal with this fairly um, um, uh, easily. Um, we, we, we put in a uh, response which was uh, written largely by Lord Justice McCluskey, uh, which indicated that we felt that the judicial review system in Northern Ireland seemed to work pretty efficiently. Um, we noted the, uh, the Fox report's uh, suggestions, um, and we didn't see that there was subject to, to the controversy that there is at the moment in relation to what's called the court case where um, the reviewers or the Lord Fox uh, says that there was some misleading in terms of the figures that were produced to the committee, but uh, we were perfectly content with the um, outcome so far as it affected us. Um, and we don't really think um, that uh, at the moment um, that there's any need uh, to go beyond what the Fox Committee uh, has, um, has found. I mean, this was a committee of um, perfectly competent and able people who were selected to look carefully at this issue, and it doesn't seem to me that um, that there's any particular need uh, to go beyond that. Um, if the Lord Chancellor brings forward other proposals, then obviously I or my successor will comment on them. Okay, thank you very much, you. and um, I too want to wish you a long and happy retirement. Um, Chair, that's all my questions. Thank you. Thank you very much. And finally, we have Doug. Sir Declan, um, first of all, thank you for, for giving so much of your time today uh, and so much of your time over uh, over many years. Um, uh, I, I think you've been you've been exceptional, and I, like the rest, really hope that you have um, a really enjoyable. Uh, future, whatever that may entail, and whatever captures your imagination in the years, uh, in the years to come. Um, I, I was going to—I mean, a lot of the questions I was going to ask have been asked, and that's always the beauty of going last, I suppose. <laughs> um, but I, I was going to ask about the, the family courts, um, uh, and 
there's a lot of angst out there in the family courts that court orders when they're in relation to child contacts uh, aren't really acted upon but if uh, court orders were in relation to sort of assets or anything like that um, is acted upon seem to be more speedily uh, and I was just wondering if if you had given any thought to um, reform of the legal aid for, for, for to change it in the family courts to take away that that issue of one 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 family member for example getting legal aid and the other one not and just perpetuating the the issues that you can get in the family courts because of that that very reason no i i think you're quite right about to to uh, raise this issue because it is troublesome i mean you um sometimes uh, parents just simply cannot see the wood for the trees in relation to their arrangements uh, for their children and uh, from the point of view of somebody who is not a legally assisted parent uh, facing uh, a legally assisted parent in circumstances where there is uh, ongoing dispute between them, um, I mean, there is, I think, a pretty obvious imbalance uh, which arises in relation to um, their um, standing. Uh, the legally aided uh, a person can afford to pursue whatever legal right they can persuade the Legal Aid Committee to support them on. Um, the uh, self-funding parent um, is, I'm afraid, in many circumstances left in a situation where, and I've seen this myself on a number of occasions, where they really can't afford uh, legal support anymore and they actually then have to become personal litigants. And being a personal litigant in your family dispute where you have all the emotional baggage that inevitably go, uh, I use baggage neutrally, but all the emotional uh, aspects that go with that, I think is extraordinarily difficult. So I agree with you that um, this is uh, uh, an issue that certainly if we have, if we can find some form of legislative solution for or, or other practical solution for, um, then um, I, I certainly would want to uh, assist in any way I could. Uh, and, and do you think there is that solution out there, um, well, Sir Declan? Do you think there is a solution out there? Is there something innovative? You know, will your replacement? Do you think look at that as something that we could progress in in maybe the next mandate, or or is there still imaginative thinking still required? Well, I, I wonder about that. I mean, you know, I, I mean, I don't want to point the finger in other directions, but I do wonder. Um, whether there might be a mechanism. I mean, you know, with these things, sometimes uh, what you need to look at is not just the legislative solution, but also whether or not you can introduce procedures that might be uh, more effective. Now, I imagine that the Family Court, for instance, will have attempted mediation and other ways of trying to deal with it, and that probably um, has been ineffective. Um, but I do wonder whether, you know, in that type of situation, um, that... Uh, it may be necessary for legal aid authorities to take a very close look at what they should be funding and what they shouldn't be funding. Um, and I mean, where um, you know, where you're in this situation and uh, um, it is on the verge of becoming abusive, then it seems to me that there may be something to be said for uh, trying to talk in a practical way uh, with the legal aid authorities about how they should approach this. And, and, and would that be like going down the GB route, um, Sir Declan, then? Because I think they've removed it, I believe, haven't they, from their from their they, family they courts? No longer. 
I must say, I think that would be uh, definitely a retrograde step in terms of removing funding, uh, because uh, the, the funding that is provided, uh, often for both parties, uh, is extremely helpful in, in ensuring that there is a resolution of the issues uh, and is much to the benefit of the children and the parties at the end of the day. What, what I'm talking about is uh, taking a very close look um, at those circumstances where um, you are being faced with any kind of repetitive uh, um, uh, litigation or prolonging uh, of litigation. And it seems to me that there might be something to be said for just understanding that um, the award of legal aid funding should be proportionate uh, to the issues involved and people certainly shouldn't be funded to come uh, and you know, make a nuisance of themselves to their former partner. Thank you very much, and best of luck to you in the uh, in the future. Thank you, Chair. Thank you. Thank you very much, Doug. And uh, Sir Declan, that brings us to a conclusion. And it was once said, you have to put off being young until you retire. So I trust that you will find your renewed youth uh, as you retire. Well, that's very kind of you. And thank you for your contribution today. Can you also take our best wishes? Because this week you have appointed two new county court judges. Yes. And can you pass on to them uh, our best wishes on their uh, elevation and uh, wish them well in their new roles? And thank you uh, again, and we wish you well. Bandy, thank you as well for being with Sir Dex. Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you. Uh, members, just a couple of things that we wanted just to tidy up, uh, and really following on from uh, the presentation from Sir Declan, it might be useful uh, for us to get an update on the estate strategy in terms of courts, uh, if we're agreed, just to see where all of that is at. Uh, also, uh, would you have any view as to whether or not we should just ask the department for their comment in relation to a non-ministerial department. Uh, it might be interesting to see what we would get back, given it was uh, uh, Sir Declan's B. Uh, my worry is it's not somebody who has a B in their bonnet, it's when they behave, uh, <laughs> and, and that really uh, can become rather challenging. So if you're agreed, we might just ask the department in relation to that. Uh, and also, I think the point that uh, was made by uh, Peter because uh, it is worrying. I've heard a, a few comments in some other departments that there is now a tendency to start clawing back what they had uh, pre-COVID. And I think some departments are beginning to re-establish their, uh, their credentials. So if there's been good practice established, then I think that good practice should be uh, retained. And, and built upon. So maybe it might be useful for us to ask the department uh, what will, in their, in their view, what has been established as good practice, whether it is in regards to the remote hearings, uh, and what of those are going to be retained, so that we get some sense and picture where some of those things are. Happy enough? Agreed. Yep. Thank you. Correspondence, members, and it is really only uh, there is just there are seven items of correspondence. There's one that I just draw to your attention. It's a woman's policy. It's page 745. Uh, it's the woman's policy group and an invitation to attend the relaunch of the COVID-19 feminist recovery plan on Wednesday, 28th of July. And that just 
uh, if uh, members would let the committee office know uh, who would like to attend so that the necessary arrangements uh, can be made. Uh, there is an item, Chairman's Business, and I suppose the only thing I want to say is we had written as a committee to the Minister, following on from uh, last week's meeting in relation to the Justice Bill. Uh, I, along with the, the Vice Chair, met the Minister on Monday, had a further conversation uh, with the Minister uh, later or on Tuesday, I think it was, had a discussion with the First Minister, and uh, I think we landed at a place where Today at the Executive, I understand uh, a Justice Bill, uh, a revised Justice Bill was approved. So we will now see uh, the site of that, I hope, very soon, and we'll start to make. Now, my understanding is that it basically narrows down the bill, what was, the, I think, the, the place where the committee was at anyway, to focus on uh, the issues that need, needed to be the focus, particularly in relation to. Uh, uh, Sir John Gillan's report, and so we we'll now have landed ourselves with some more work. But I think that it's work that's worth doing. It's the right thing to do, and we will see the detail of that. And hopefully, by next when the next the meeting next week, we'll have more detail in relation to that. So that's hopefully progress. Uh, any other items of business? Oh, Linda. Thank you, Chair. Um, just in relation to a couple of issues, the first one is on the Justice Bill. I would certainly be more than happy to see that coming forward. I, I think I've re raised it enough times. I don't need to go over all, all the reasons why I want to see it coming forward. Um, I probably am slightly disappointed that it's going to be a revised bill. We wanted the bill. I believe that there was a lot of stuff in it that was important. and. But what we, you know, what we need now is to see the bill in front of the committee and and see what's in it and ensure that we get through it. Um, I, I also think it's important that we see what's not in it. You know, if, if the department can provide us with that, what's not in the bill, so that we can look at question them on how those issues will be progressed. Because you know, we did talk at, at great length as a committee numerous occasions around the important issues that we want to see in the Justice Bill. So I think it's important as a committee, if it's possible, for us to see what is now not going to be in that bill so that we can we can look at that and see where what other avenues or how the, those issues will be um remedied. So thank you. Okay. Uh, Rachel Thanks, Chair. No, my comments were very similar to Linda's. I'm just a bit surprised to hear about a revised bill. I'm not really too sure why, but that's um, for other people to decide on and not me. Um, so I would certainly welcome um, any information about what's not going to be in it. Um, so are we talking, um, Chair, apologies, you may have some more information on it than I do, but we're talking now that there would not be a miscellaneous bill, but it'll be about Gillen Review um, instead. I get the sense that that was following on from the, the, the conversation that that was what the focus would be, uh, that it would be more specific as opposed to being a miscellaneous bill that opens up the opportunity for the department to bring everything that it wants to bring and make it a, a larger bill than what was maybe necessary. In, in the time that we have, given the fact that we're at this particular juncture in relation to the mandate. 
But again, I don't have all the detail, and that's why I think we should find out what's in it and what's not in it, so that uh, because this committee has had, from what I can gather, a pretty extensive exchange in relation to the issue over a period of time. So. Yes, thank you, Chair. No, I think we've been waiting on this bill since last year, so it's certainly um, something we've, we've continually raised. So we're looking forward to getting to it. I would just have concern. Just I know that there was, um, you know, an agreement set with the likes of positions of trust legislation. Would that be something that would still be in it? And if not, why not? So I just, I, yeah, would definitely welcome some more information on that. Uh, hopefully, the executive can sign off on that amongst the other bills that are um, currently awaiting sign off. Um, and we can, we can certainly um, scrutinise that, as is our job, as and when we get a hold of it. But thank you. Thank you. Okay, just one other item, members. Are you just content? I need to clarify this. You're content with the actions in the remaining items of correspondence as set out in the cover sheet, or whether there are any other comments you wish to raise? Content? Okay, that brings us to the conclusion, which is the time and place of the next meeting. Just to remind members that we had agreed a joint meeting that will be held with the Health Committee at 1pm on Thursday, the 1st of July, and then the next meeting of the committee will then be at 2.30 on the 1st of July in room 30 here in Parliament Buildings. Members, thank you for your attendance. Sorry, is, it, is it also in room 30? No, the arrangements for the joint meeting will be sent out to you as soon as we they're, they're finalised. Can I thank Peter for being in attendance here and kept me seeing along with the staff and to the members <laughs> who zoomed in uh, if I ever am seeing but I don't know about that. Yeah. But uh, thank you again for your help and uh, we'll see you all being well next week. Thank you. Chair, can we just welcome Peter and Robin to the committee? Sorry. We got earlier in the, in, in the meeting. <laughs> At least I can reassure Jab I won't be closing any more schools while I'm, while I'm here. <laughs> okay. Thank you. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly, Senate Chamber, Programme Sound.